We're going in raw. That's yeah. right. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. I, I, I want, like over the past week, like, uh, so I've been, you know, doing just a bunch of reading on uh, uh, painting, look, looking at painting. So I, I really do feel like music and visual are, are probably my weakest areas in terms of criticism. Um, and, you know, like like knowing you, right, like uh, nobody in the cosmetic orbit really is, is a painter or anything. So, uh, I mean, it's just nice to have like a new set of perspectives in that way. It's 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 difficult as well. well. There's a whole lot of assumptions already, kind of in the I don't know what we would call it, kind of the cosmoetica space. I mean, not just what like um uh, the various things that Dan says about painting, and he does talk quite a bit about painting in his novels and stuff and his uh, mm -hmm. poems. But there's there's a lot there's a lot of stuff already there to kind of deal with, to kind of like uh, engage with. So already it's like I'm a mm -hmm. it's I'm, a, I'm preparing for kind of a lot of resistance to kind of what I, where I'm coming from as a visual mm -hmm. artist compared to where everyone else might be coming from, which might be more kind of text-based or whatever. So yeah. that's, the, that's the kind of difficulty there. Yeah. But it's, it's a kind of a one that's hard to resist. I think I quite like, mm -hmm. I quite like arguing about visual art because visual art itself, the mm -hmm. best visual art is a challenge. Um, no one view, no one look, at a great work of visual art, like, you know, painting, mm -hmm. ever suffices. So hard work is necessary in a way for visual art, in a way that we don't expect what with it coming so naturally, the way that, you know, visual art arrives to us. You don't have to think to look at visual art. You mm -hmm. just do it. Same way you don't have to think to look at me and sort of make sense of kind of, you know, what's happening, you know. Um, it just happens. It's um, uh, mechanical. It's mechanostimuli. But at the same time, there is something very elaborate going on with the whole kind of uh, um, complex of senses that we have developed uh, as part of our kind of evolutionary development or whatever, that, that really we don't have a way of properly talking about, or, or there's not a way of talking about it, of talking about this, um, uh, this stuff that is easily digestible or, or, or is, is kind of, or is easily sort of made sense of or, or can easily be paraphrased that's mm. the that's the trickiness there which is what means means to me that this has been neglected in a way kind of mm. this this overall kind of visual experience it might be easy to say things like visual experience visual pleasure but when we actually get down to it what are these things when we actually try talking about these things we get in trouble so you know all sorts of fun can happen all sorts of uh, frustration and um uh, mm contradiction can arise from talking about these things precisely because they're so hard to kind of on the one hand perceive but then really kind of make sense of do, do you think it's uh for you um or maybe you could extrapolate this to people in general like do you think it's more difficult to talk about painting than it is to talk about for example a, a great poem and explaining why that works or a great novel um or you know perhaps like other other media as well like where do you think it's more difficult to do that with visual art with great art, um, um, full stop, there's a difficulty in being able to exactly kind of, you know, um, uh, 
because when we're talking with about great art and we're trying to kind of make sense of how it operates mm -hmm. ultimately we are going to be kind of speaking about it reductively you know we have to we have to speak yeah, persuasively yeah. we have to be as kind of coherent as we can when talking about this sort of stuff but great mm -hmm. art in of itself is often quite you know there's this um uh, there's this surplus there's this there's this element that's quite tricky because like e even Cezanne and we can talk about Cezanne it's it's very tricky to find a kind of way to sum up that mm -hmm. thing he does even though we might look at Cezanne's and go there's a Cezanne painting oh that's totally Cezanne you know mm -hmm. we can recognize this thing but again it's hard to paraphrase how do we do that yeah. you know do we we can we can sort ultimately we end up either reducing it to a kind of list of uh, qualities or we kind of uh, we we kind of like or it's kind of outward effects we and it, and it's tricky because you don't want to undermine the artwork one likes to think that the artwork is robust enough to kind of hold all these different kind of qualities and all these different mm -hmm. things but again again it's tricky with great art it's but with bad art i think it is quite easy to say what yes, it is yes, it's yeah, quite right. easy to yes, yeah. be able to kind of look up and especially when you compare them when you compare great works with minor works or even compare among great works you know that's 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 the the key thing for me in kind of developing an mm. understanding of kind of like what may be happening painter to painter and kind of what qualities specific to painting and visual art might be um uh, for these artists I mean, yeah. it, it really is the case of looking and then looking again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Which again, well, it's hard work. One thing that I've noticed though with great art, and I mean, you, t you touched on this, is just the fact that like, e even if you do, let's say, get a set of, you know, uh, three or four or five or six things that can make a, a painting or a poem or whatever, great. Um, there's tons of stuff like, you know, in the surrounding area that would sort of, I, I wouldn't say contradict it, but would sort of kind of refract from it, right? Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think probably the most anal analogous thing to painting is like, whenever I see criticism uh, in visual art, um, critics like to talk about, you know, things like balance. I've never really mm. uh, liked that term too much because to me, it seems balance. it's... Mm, yeah, balance, balance. 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 Yeah. yeah. Well, that's just that's just uh, design theory. Yeah. In design theory, there's all talk of balance, harmony, symmetry, asymmetry, uh, order, disorder. It's just it's just a sophisticated design philosophy of kind of you know uh, some you know something being engaging visually on that point of pure formalism. You know, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not yeah. too interesting. Not too boring. You know. Yeah. It's, so to me, like, it's always struck me as um, uh, that is a term that more neatly applies to, you know, aesthetics and philosophy, uh, uh, architecture. Um, but but when it comes to like really trying to get at, at greatness in art, you wouldn't talk about balance uh, as such. You'd probably uh, allude to things like uh, uh, uh uh, the process of being, you know, part of a balancing act. And I mean, when we get to like Cezanne and stuff, look at some paintings, you'll yeah, see yeah. this uh, more obviously, like you, you always have this sense of being in a balancing act, right? You don't necessarily yeah. want want a one-to-one -one relationship. You don't want, for example, a red ball here to be offset by, you know, an identical red ball somewhere else. You want there to always be a give and take where you see ultimately it, it's going to be a lot more like an imbalance rather than balance. But if you think of it more so as a as an ongoing never finished balancing act 
um, uh, th that's probably a more useful way if, if you're trying to understand, you know, what makes uh, art good or not, right? Beyond kind of like the more uh, aesthetic qualities and, and, and by aesthetics, I just mean like the, the philosophy of aesthetics, right? Which oftentimes like it seems like it has a lot to do with art, but it really doesn't um, in many cases, if not most cases. Well, well, let's let's get specific then, kind of, because we're talking about visual art. I mean, it, it is easy to kind of conflate certain things as well. And then, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, already we're sort of talking about sort of um, quite a few different things. But like painting, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, what is painting? And, you know, so like, when we, like, you know, you were mentioning balance and that sort of stuff. And like, although I'm not sure I, I entirely take your point, like I'm a, I, I know that sometimes there is... A sort of way of talking about pictures which you know doesn't really do them justice or feels reductive or feels kind of like in a way like it's trying to get rid of the painting there's a way of almost trying to get rid of the painting kind of by uh, I, I, and I see this all the time I see kind of writers who are kind of really ill-equipped to talk about the painting and to kind, of, to kind of like pinpoint what makes the painting good as painting you know like um, uh, to get you know we you know, we can get lost in uh, all this other stuff or all this other kind of like you don't want to basically just reduce the painting to a list of qualities or a kind of an index. I mean, like it might be interesting to say that a painting has allegories or emblems or symbols, but allegories, emblems and symbols can work just as well on paper. They can just work just as well on the kind of list describing the painting. Kind of what is it about the painting itself? which activates and makes use of these um, like ways of uh, signage, ways of um, uh, description and conveyance and all this other stuff. What, it, what is happening on the painterly level? And so I, I actually welcome kind of a painterly way, a kind of, a kind of formalist way of talking about art that, that actually gets down to the making level and talks about the kind of the making of the work as the real drama, the real place of significance. And it, it's like, and so we can talk about paintings in terms of stuff like balance, but it's not enough to just talk about balance in some vague, some vague wishy-washy kind of way. If yeah. we're talking about balance, we have to, well, what is really happening in this painting, which is dealing with and making use of and playing and expounding upon these sort of, um, you know, balance, you know, and I think, you know, Manet, Edouard Manet, or um, uh, Poussin, or Cézanne, even, are really good examples of painters who actually play with a kind of sense of vertigo within their paintings, and play with a kind of sense of disorientation, a sense of a kind of deliberately disordered kind of space, a kind of Baroque space. And so, I mean, so, you know, it's all a question of how these painters deal with things. You know, uh, it, it is boring to talk about painting in terms of what is painting? Oh, it's brushstrokes. Yeah, but only when done right. Yeah, what is painting? Balance. Yeah, but only when it's done right. In the, in the hands of the wrong artist, brushstrokes mean fuck all. In the hands of the wrong artist, balance means fuck all. It's about what you can do to, con like, to actually, you know, uh, make these things real, to make them real through your own painterly touch. And uh, that's, that's what excites me with, with a painting that I can't get anywhere else or I can't get from any other medium. Like what, what, what happens there? So, I mean, 
so where do, where do we want to go from here and kind of like this discussion kind of like is is there any kind of because really we can go fucking anywhere yeah i, I mean like we i'm not sure how much time you have but we generally uh talk for a long time so uh, i'm kind of feeling like I, I didn't want to overplan this too much um wherever it goes it goes but just one thing that you said uh you, you said painting you know like analyzing all this it's 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 a matter of the how right you want to figure out how something works and the irony there is i mean this isn't uh, uh unlike what you know i or dan or joe uh believe when it comes to the arts in general right um uh, we would discuss mm -hmm. this discuss the how but regardless uh, uh you know all three of us in some ways we're still going to diverge a little bit and maybe you ethan will diverge uh, uh even more um mm -hmm. maybe we could like sort of like people that aren't uh, clued in yet on so you had a critique on um uh, some of our videos on on, on uh, various paintings and you you asked if mm -hmm. there's a difference between meaning and interpretation i'm not sure if like joe like if you want to like yeah, jump yeah. in and just like um you know, uh, fill everybody in who 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 uh, isn't aware of uh, uh, that part of this um, discussion. Yeah, well, that goes all the way back to one of maybe our first artifact video, and we were talking about Michelangelo and Bosch, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and and we did we gave a, a a literary take in a lot of ways mm -hmm. on those things, right? What's the narrative? What's happening? Uh, physically happening, storytelling wise, almost in the painting, and and I'll admit we didn't talk a whole lot about um about the how of the paintings themselves that i recall at least and so i will say one thing like since uh even listening to your response video and then digging a little deeper into your channel and some of your comments on painting uh it, it has opened up uh a little bit more of like a fresh channel of thinking for me where maybe that's always going to be my default mode a little bit is is to unpack the story of what's going on and what's being told but then uh even after we Roam, roam around the canvas and talk about individual pieces and maybe how they fit into some kind of narrative, then to be able to dredge further and, and talk about some of the actual painterly techniques or some of the how. And then at the end of all of that, it's maybe that's like interpretation in a sense, right? We're interpreting what we see. But then at the end of it all, one thing I've been thinking this week is, so I, I do all that, I write some notes down, I have some immediate thoughts about it, but then I look and I look again and I come back to it. And even after all that, the painting's still there. It's still it's still just unto itself. It's it's mm -hmm. still just demanding to be to be viewed and interacted with. And there is something about that element that um, that you maybe can't articulate that well. I, I know I've been struggling this week to to maybe articulate mm -hmm. in my own mind some of those kind of things. So maybe that's where for painting as its own medium uh, and the importance of although we can agree probably in, in the main about what could make great art, period, if we're gonna drill down and talk more about painting itself, uh, how that gets frustrating, mm -hmm. uh, but in a good way, but in a good way. And then it forces us maybe to, to come up with some of these different layers of meanings or even a different way of thinking about meaning. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've been trying to do. In fact, uh, Ethan, I, I watched your uh, Patrick Heron uh, video on Matisse. Um, I actually watched it maybe two or three times, uh, trying to just you know get at you know exactly uh, what because if you view Patrick Heron in the same way that I view Dan Schneider as a as a critic, right? That's going to give us like similar uh, ideas in terms of what we value, right, in the criticism. And um, one thing that that struck that struck me with Patrick Heron is when, when he would talk about uh, um, 
you know, like uh, I have a Matisse's like red interior. We're probably going to talk about that a little bit at some point. Uh, that, you know, a lot of that is applicable uh, in my mind to lots of paintings that maybe that you, Ethan, would, would you know, uh, not think very good. Um, and so, like, before we get to the specifics, maybe we just spend a few more minutes on. Uh, so, uh, well, if I might, if I might say, like, um, uh, I think this is I think to talk about Patrick Heron and Clement Greenberg would be a good way to sort of, in a way, set up some things moving forward. Okay. You know, sort of talking about kind of, you know, painting because Heron and Greenberg in sort of mid-century kind of modernist uh, sort of painterly critique are two very interesting figures. And in a way, they were huge rivals. Um, sort of at first they were friends, but then they had a huge falling out. I think it's because Greenberg snubbed Heron, disliked his paintings. Um, but uh, and there was also the sense from Heron that Greenberg was kind of quite narcissistically promoting American abstract painting over European abstract painting, sort of as if to say kind of where the pioneers forget about the provincial European abstract painters. Um, so Heron took that personally. But with Patrick Heron, Patrick Heron is very laser-like in his appraisal of kind of paintings. Like with Heron, there really is the sense when he's talking about painting, that painting really does come down to that yellow squiggle there that bit of red there just that way that that you know the way that that blue is deployed in exactly that bit of surface area he's really kind of quite minute and like really kind of um subtle but also really kind of beautiful in the way he writes about the painting but greenberg was much more of a well when he starts out he's a marxist when he's writing in the 30s and um, although later in the kind of 60s, he becomes much more of a swinger, you know, cocktail parties, very groovy kind of guy. And he becomes much more oblique and in a way, almost kind of Confucian in his like, uh, he would just kind of unjustifiably spout off kind of um, uh, uh, opinions about paintings without, you know, any sort of need to, again, like uh, rationalize them. But the the thing that was the thing that was in common with both of them was they felt that like painting has to like toughen up that kind of basically that abstraction is a kind of frontier of painting and it kind of had to kind of basically toughen that toughen up or else risk becoming kitsch but for Patrick Heron it was about kind of the recomplication of the picture plane it was about really kind of making the entire picture surface this um, this kind of activated all over composition whereas whereas Clement Greenberg had this kind of quite strange almost like a this this idea about flatness he believed that kind of the the that modernist painting was becoming more and more frontal and more flat kind of going forward that that was kind of the horizon of kind of modernist painting it it would become more and more flat and more and more modern but um, uh, eventually he kind of gave up on that himself. But I mean, the whole, the whole question now is kind of though, kind of like, where, where, how far can you push painting and have it still be painting? Yeah. You know, like right. this, I, this is it, what is um, the way forward for painting and what is just a signpost or a kind of, you know, uh, you know, just another kind of, uh, roadside attraction on the kind of the the grand history of painting 
you know, what what really kind of is the the imperative for kind of artists working today. And I think both of them felt that there was a kind of urgency to reject a kind of a kind of um, well, I, I suppose a kind of kitsch is one way of putting it to reject kind of academic standards, to reject any kind of any kind of any kind of measures or effects that would try to meet people's taste more than halfway that would basically, you know, try and make the scene. What, like, what, what would that look like? What is an academic standard when it comes to, for example, uh, uh, abstract art, especially if, we're if you're saying like pushing it to the edge? For Clement Greenberg in his essay, Avant-Garde and Kitsch, he talked about, you know, what is the difference between uh, Pablo Picasso cubist painting and say uh, a communist Soviet realist painting, mm -hmm. which do you think would be more popular among kind of you know everyday people to hang over their mantelpiece in their living room? They would go with the Soviet realist Soviet painting. Yeah. They would get it. And what Greenberg says, what does that tell you? That that's the better artist. We can't trust consensus, but then what does that mean for culture? This was the difference between him and Heron. Heron would never talk about wider cultural issues. He would never talk about politics or anything like that. He would never talk about the zeitgeist. He would only ever stay within the painting. Heron had a bigger vision, a grander, more historical vision. For, uh, Greenberg had a grander vision for painting where he sort of said that kind of like art has to like resist kind of complacency. Art has to resist adhering to normal bourgeois academic standards where it's trying to ingratiate people and trying to, you know, being emotionally cloying and basically uh, uh, trying to coerce you, right? which, which Soviet realism was doing. Soviet realism was a, was a, a state government style while modernist artists were thrown into gulags and concentration camps or else had to flee to, um, uh, to America. It was, um, uh, it was, you know, but, and yet it proved popular and it's still popular today. In fact, Soviet realism is still popular. You see Soviet realists being reformed, selling lots and lots of books, selling lots and lots of merchandise. Um, uh, you see essays written kind of apologists for kind of this, this horrible art. And it, it, I mean, like, I mean, we're slightly getting into polemical territory for me and kind of my views on contemporary no, I, 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 I think, I think that's good. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. I love figurative art. And you won't meet an abstract painter worth his salt today who doesn't love figurative art, the great figurative artists of the past, Rubens, Constable, Poussin, Cezanne, um, uh, all, like, all the kind of artists of kind of, uh, like, Van Eyck, Bruegel, all, like, these, these are amazing, incredible titans of art. These are incredible, incredible artists. But kind of like the way to like really meet these artists and the way to kind of really accept what they're doing and accept it without any any fucking bullshit is not to bite their style and trying to paint like them or trying to cosplay as them, which so many fucking kitsch artists try to do. They're fucking playing cosplay. There's this one artist called Odd Nerdum, who is a kind of kitsch contemporary figurative realist kind of painter who I, I kind of, who kind of makes me like my kind of my bile starts to rise is it's just he just cosplays as rembrandt and he paints these dingy fucking turgid paintings which are just like 
and like, and people fall over themselves to praise it. And it is so easy as a, at a certain point to praise a certain kind of realist art. Mm-hmm. All these fucking lovely aunties standing in art galleries, cooing breathlessly over these paintings. These fucking like, oh, like um, uh, I wish I, but uh, you know, I thought about take, doing life drawing when I was in college. Oh, look at the brush strokes. Oh, it's about realism, isn't it? Look at the eyes. Don't they follow you around the room? You know, it's, it's, we're not thinking when we talk like this. We're not thinking about what's really there. We, we, get, we get lost in a certain kind of, uh, uh, a, a kind of belle ponture, a kind of, a, a kind of just uh, a chic academic fucking mm. thing. I mean, you see the same kind of painting on the, the BMP um, National Portrait Awards every year in Britain. Kind of, it's just fucking same old, same old fucking turgid realist portraits again and again and again and again and again. And that's, it's, it's like the death of painting. To, to say a little bit, uh, to say a little bit with that, with the cultural critique. Um, so in your example, like Soviet realism versus Picasso, what would the yeah. you know average person want to hang up on their walls? Um, so like, if we were going to ask that question, uh, when both of those were just kind of like, you know, coming out and maybe were not so mainstream and, you know, uh, people were still resistant to Picasso probably throughout, you know, much of his life, even if now it's been sort of accepted. So like, uh, years and years ago, uh, yes, it would be a Soviet realist painter. Uh, today, uh, I would definitely imagine given the fact that Picasso is now merely part of the culture. Uh, many people would would prefer Picasso, especially if they know that it's a Picasso, right? So they could, you know, sort of, you know, do that, I guess, virtue signal of, oh, you know, I have a great painter on my wall that everybody accepts as a, as a great painter, right? Uh, so when I think about that question, Soviet realism versus Picasso, um, uh, to me, it's kind of like, well, uh, those represent two different kinds of styles. I can imagine, you know, just like situationally, uh, a, a potentially great painter you know within the soviet realist school even though like maybe you know like realistically he he would not be you know uh, allowed to display right truly great art probably would have to be cooked out of society under that kind of you know system but uh i could imagine just just aesthetically um uh, a, a soviet realist type doing great work i could imagine a picasso type doing terrible work right so the way that i would uh, uh sort of frame the cultural critique is no matter which uh, aesthetic that somebody might want to choose, you know, for historical reasons or whatever, or personal sensibilities, they have a, a, a decently equal Alex, chance. Alex, they I have an equal chance, right, uh, of choosing a, a bad one from either category. You know, Alex, in Korea, in Korea, North <laughs> Korea, they have state-mandated published literature. They have fiction published by the state, in which I'm, uh, you know, I read it. Well, yeah, but but, but that's what I, I mean. Say to you, I can, but, but I that's can what I mean. But that's what I, I mean. The, you, the I mandate, though. I can say. Well, these paintings were mandated. Most of them, like um, uh, Kazimir Malievich was threatened, well, like um, uh, under penalty. Well, of, well, yeah, um, well, yeah, the, 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 yeah this, this is why. This why. This why I said that specifically the mandated art, right? Those that would be displayed, you know, those that would be sold, those that you know would and be even praised. Worse, the people it, who it can't after be the that. The Soviet Union <laughs> continue to paint in this style. It's 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 a it's a totally. Um, synthetic, idealized, like hypocritical view of reality. All these paintings of smiley, rosy-cheeked peasants. All these fucking, all these fucking like uh, beautiful Aboriginals and kind of like uh, uh, natives. It's a total synthetic, like contrived. It's a fucking lie. 
Like it's it's total con- contrivance. I mean, and even if I were to look past kind of like the the hypocrisy of it, like the compositions in most of them aren't very good. It's all very kind of stagey, kind of hongo, kind of campy kind of stuff. And it, all the all the kind of like I mean, we could get on to um, uh, Jiwei too, or um, uh, um, uh, the painter we were discussing in our correspondence. Can I grab you? But 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 so like, can you, for example, imagine you know uh, a painting within a certain style? Let's say you know, let's say that it wasn't mandated, right? Let's say that this is one of the paintings that would not be allowed to be displayed in the Soviet Union, but it's within that style, right? I would I, say I, that I would say that even the best Soviet realist painter would always be minor. They don't probably compare given the con- great, given the context. I agree, probably yes. They but, don't, but, they but don't just in the compare world with the great realists. They don't compare with the great so-called. Oh, yes, I agree. So-called. Yes. And I, I think that realist is, I can't is, is a, realist. Yeah. Realist is a kind of inadequate term. But they don't compare with the great realist art of the past. Compare any painting by Zhu Weitu with the art of uh, Chardin, a truly great realist painter who did do paintings of humble, average people, peasants, servants, and it is night and day. It is night and day. Like it's, uh, I, I think you see the kind of the, the there's just a total hollow. You just get sentiment in GA too. This kind of hallmark Christmas card sentiment. Sentiment is for people without emotions. Okay, like look at Chardin's pictures. There is a genuine warmth there. He feels for his subjects, and not just the servants, but their objects as well. Their tools, the the furniture, everything was is infused with the same warmth, the same kind of touch. With Shiwei too, it feels cosmetic. It feels totally disingenuous. It's this stoked up thing. And even like, we could talk about the paint and the effects and like all that stuff. Even there, I feel like it's a bit literal. It's all a bit. Um, uh, it's all a bit, how, how should I say it? It, it, it? It's, it's, it's unvaried. It, it's, it's cliched. It's formulaic. And it's, you know, it doesn't compare at all to the kind of fluid, varied, limber stuff you get in Cezanne or the kind of much more kind of, I believe, actual, calm, gentle, genuine sort of, um, the genuine human content and the genuine feeling you would get in a Chardin. I'm not against realist art. I'm not against art that portrays, you know, the so-called real. I'm not some kind of person who worships abstract marks and kind of like in a, in a abstract painting. Uh, but it is a question of degree of like how these things are used. I think there is, is there a lot of bad abstract art out there? Is there a lot of kitsch, lazy, like a pointless kind of uh, utterly dead abstract art out there? Fuck yes. Um, is there equally a lot of bad, complacent, homo illustration, just like fucking uh, figurative art out there? Yes. And that gets more praise and it gets more kind of cooing ekphrasis and like um, literary analysis than anything. And it means that these artists get just overexposed, overpraised. People continue painting like that, like it's a good thing. They can imagine sort of fantasize in a cosplayer way. I'm a 19th century painter. I'm a realist. Look at my, like, my, like, and it's, it just encourages laziness. We are, like, there has to be a more rigorous approach to this. Like, I, so yeah, I have to, I, I take a stance about some of this stuff where I like, you know, it might sound kind of moralistic to like denounce Soviet realism and go kind of like that sort of stuff's off the table. That's not painting, but it really isn't. I mean, like when I take the whole, like when I look at the whole continuity of art history, Soviet realist painting just seems like utterly perverse. 
And he's utterly perverse to compare it to the art of Chardin or Cezanne or any of these other realists. Do you want to talk about yeah. one of the specifics? Oh, uh, Joel? Yeah, well, I was, I was just going to say, too, um, I think, Ethan, I can see your point in it. And I'll use an example of, um, like, years ago, I came across Grand Central Atelier, which I, th I think is based in New York City uh -huh. and is a, a school for upcoming artists. And um, when you, like, if you go on that website and you look at the work of the artists there, I think this speaks a bit to the point you're you're making where it hit me at the time that, just from a purely technical standpoint, some of the draftsmanship and some of the the lighting setups and, and like the still life still life paintings you'd see and this kind of thing uh, were in a way perfectly executed. Mm. But when you actually thought about the artwork and what you were seeing, there there was no there there. There wasn't really any life to it, and it felt mm -hmm. way too academic and as though. Um, like long-term, there's not going to be really a whole lot to recommend here, even though yeah. these people clearly are of a skill level just with, with, with their mark making, with their drawing, whatever, mm -hmm. that, that they could be great artists if there was some kind of engine room, if there was some kind of drive toward a different view other than just a, a rehashing of, of these things that we've seen before and doing it with, with less life to it. Um, so it, I think I can see your point there. I think also, though, that that maybe what Alex is trying to get at is could could we could we imagine that in in the future there or maybe even now I know there's some artist working who can begin to to combine these things like to to take the best out of each respective piece and maybe combine it in some kind of fresh, interesting way to where we don't get a North Korean state kind of artist, but someone who who could draw something out of even that uh, and repurpose it. I think you know, there are other techniques too. Yeah. Can I, um, may I ask, are you a visual artist, Joel? Photography. Yeah. Photography. Not yeah. Right. Well, well, you know, it's, it is the case that like, I mean, there are figurative artists working today who have merit and they're like, I mean, I mean, are they, I mean, again, I don't think you could necessarily describe them as realists. I mean, there are like some Cezannean painters working today who are like mm -hmm. figurative but you know, I, I you know, in a way, I'm totally in favour of a certain kind of art where you can see that the hours have been put in, and you can see a certain kind. I do value craft, like, and I the, the be able to see the making there. Um, but I think with certain kinds of art, like it just the stuff is kind of too easily made there. There's not, there's nothing there to work. It's all done for us. It's all, all the kind of work is made kind of easily retrievable. It's made like, I, I, I'm, I started out kind of as an illustrator. I started out kind of making kind of, I don't know what you'd like figurative art basically. And sort of copying sort of figurative artists from the past that I particularly, well, basically Renaissance painters, re Renaissance draftsmen. And like, and I really got into sort of draftsmanship for the sake of, for the sake of drawing for the love of uh line i suppose but and but when you're making sort of real figurative drawings and stuff and figurative art it is very easy to praise it whereas it's like um uh, whereas if you're like a writer you're writing a novel like it's it's a bit more difficult for people to kind of get a sense of what what work goes into that sort of like what you know what the expenditure is there but if you look over someone's shoulder and you see them doing a you know drawing from life you go oh that's really good you're talented, you are. 
Yeah. You've got, you've got the amount of fucking praise, unearned praise most of the time you fucking get as a young artist drawing shit. People shower you with fucking praise. Oh, that's good. Oh, I'd love to draw. People always say, oh, I'd love to have learned to. I wish I could learn to draw. People fucking bring their own assumptions, their own fucking fantasy mythology of what being an artist is. And it totally gets in the way of what's really there. What's really like you're, like, like you're saying, like what's actually in the artwork. Whereas it's this kind of like, oh, so impressive. Draw me, draw this, draw this. Like I'm a, please, like I'm a, like my, po oh, you can really see me in there. Like, I'm sorry, it's boring. It's good. If you can make realism work today, well fucking done. But I dare you to like produce something better than Rubens or better than Cezanne. It's fu that's the real fucking mystery of Cezanne. How the fuck he did it? Because he, he like you know. So when you say when you say realism, uh, you uh, you don't mean like something specific like like hyper realism, right? You, well, no, you no, 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 not, not those not those later kind of modernist kind of ideas of realism. I'm talking about the kind of the French. French modernist realism insofar as like French poetry and, and French pen painting as they would have understood it. Realism as it pertains to Manet and Cezanne and possibly Courbet, which is okay. basically Cezanne, the difference between someone like Cezanne and Jiwei too. Cezanne basically uses stuff from life as an excuse to do pain. Like sure, he's, yeah. he's absorbing like almost osmosis, like kind of the landscapes. And, and you know, he does feel a deep, profound connection, a sense of like, um, uh, you know, this like this sense of light and space and atmosphere for the surrounds and the environs and like the space of Aison Provence. And but it is basically there to as a springboard, as a kind of a, a, a model to ground him as he makes all these adventures across the surface of the canvas in these paintings. And I, I think, Alex, you were saying earlier that, that you felt there was a kind of a, a, a similarity between music and uh, painting uh, in the sense like um, in that they're kind of the difficulty to articulate or paraphrase yeah. what, they, what they do. Well, ever since um, uh, Delacroix and his journals, where he makes the comparison between music and painting, painters themselves have been using musical metaphors to describe what happens on the, on the scale of kind of painterly um, making or architecture. Painterly metaphors, what would that mean? And it seems something akin to music in, in, uh, in Cezanne. It's almost like as your eye moves or, you know, um, uh, traverses the space of the canvas, it kind of, it meets and sort of chimes against sequences, pathways, passages, or like um, uh, these little, these little sequences of chords that chime and sort of um, move your eye around. And that's the great thing about Cezanne, how much movement he puts in there for you. So your eye is always being ushered here and there and there and there. And, like, and Patrick Heron was actually amazing in the way that he was able to pinpoint and describe it because he says that this is this is exactly uh this is this is a uh, this is part of the the joy of, of visual experience the the sensation of kind of visual experience you know um uh, when when we look at a painting like it's it's like it's tricky i mean like apparently it's a visual lore that our eye wants to move every hundredth of a second that like it's like if you actually try to keep your eye focused on a single fixed point and not move it, or if you like, to move your eye in a straight line across your field of vision, 
it's incredibly difficult. You'll see it almost can't be done. What your eye wants to do is move from there to 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 there punctually. As Perrin says, almost like the movements of a robin from twig to twig to twig. And the way that Cezanne is able to make these paintings almost like pinball machines, a pinball like a, where your eye kind of rolls around and kind of just like just has so much space to move and like all these different different combinations of color and light and space and movement and these just become the language of his art you know like almost like with like Beethoven or Mozart the music becomes like a fog that hangs in the room kind of the colors and and the the, the spaces with Cezanne become this this symphony this just this, this just like this um uh, this bursting just like penitocene experience of different different changes and uh, that that's the moving thing for me for Cezanne the discovery of different forms like um, uh, like uh, my 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 uh, uh, my estimation of Cezanne only grows more and more over time not only do I think he's one of the best painters we've ever made, I think he's one of the best artists. Uh, the, uh, he, he, the way he masters his medium, you'd have to look to someone like Johann Sebastian Bach to really get somebody who is so just um, the way how much he contributes to his medium. You know, in the in the same way that continental philosophy still hasn't gotten over Kant, painting still hasn't gotten over Cezanne. And I know a lot of painters who personally hate me for saying that. Like I had an argument with the. Um, the gallery owner of Yantan Tether down the street. And he was, he always complains about all oh, these fucking painters who think that painting basically died with Cezanne. <laughs> like, I'm like, ouch, <laughs> like, that's me basically. Like, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically uh, an obsession for me at this point. I mean, do you, do you uh, guys want to compare all that to uh, GY2? Now I, ha I have a painting up. I'm not sure if you guys have, yeah. um, Go, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. So also, so if you, if you, uh, uh, Ethan, if you have anything you want to share, you you see that share screen button on the bottom. It's going to let you share whatever you want on your screen. So I'm doing oh, it nice. like that now, right? So now we could just go in between, right? And uh, this is going to appear in the video when it's uh, clipped out. Um, so I mean, like, Joel, uh, do you want to like say anything about uh, this painting? I guess before. Um, uh, I guess Ethan uh, attacks it. I'll have a lot of <laughs> to say to, to say too. Yeah. yeah. Well, so so um, ah, what to say? Well, I think that in looking back over Two's website, which Alex, you're right, he did change it uh, from years ago. But uh, you know, when when you go through there, um, I I do think maybe uh, it's a bit of recency bias and listening to Ethan and Mark on their uh, their podcast talk about painting and whatever, but. When I look at two now, because uh, it's been years since I've I've really taken a look, um, I can see what what Ethan's saying in terms of the just the realism and and uh, and in a way the kitsch and the appeal to 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 a, a more narrow set of uh, of what we want and expect painting to be and and almost um, maybe a like a, a little bit of a, a faint or a juke in terms of the abstract marks that get made because i remember when dan was praising two years ago one of his big things as well there's this abstract painting for the most part with the mark making and the use of color and whatever and and how like sketchy the brush strokes are and these kind of things and then a face bursts out of that 
right? Then, then all of a sudden there's, there's this figure, there's this person that we're presented with. And, um, and, and that's great. That's, that's a great, uh, that's a great use of maybe a combination of a couple different ideas in the painting medium. And I will still say, I think personally, some of that holds up for me when I look across his body of work, but, um, but but it also begins to to die out a little bit because it is repetitive. I mean, there there isn't really much variety in his figurative works. Uh, the approach is pretty much always identical. I mean, of course, the the palette, color palette used and the subject is different, but but the formula remains most of the time. And I even think uh, when I first came across him, what I what I respected most and and his works I thought were the best were his large paintings or the story type paintings. And I think now, looking at those with some fresh eyes too, uh, same idea. It's pretty formulaic, and it's pretty. Um, uh, what's I don't know exactly the best way to say it. It's uh, it, it's almost uh, propaganda in a way because it, it's this kind of um, this view of maybe like the, the, some of the ancient Chinese dynasties and this sort of thing. And it's it's uh, like a, there's excitement maybe in terms of what's happening on the canvas with a sword fight or, or a dance or something like that. But I can, and I do still see expressiveness there from him. And, and uh, again, like masterful drawing in a way, and like in, in terms of just sheer representation of, of the figures and stuff. But, but then in, I, I don't know that I see anymore a, a whole lot of, um, of, of his own complete fresh ideas on these things. And, and I'll continue looking. I mean, right. That was kind of my take this week when, mm -hmm. when I came back to it uh, and I'll keep revisiting his work, but uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking, looking at it this week, uh, this particular painting. Uh, you know, I, I think that there is still, there's still some things to recommend uh, the, the, the use of lighting that he's got in there. And, and to Ethan's point about like the eye roaming around the canvas. I mean, for me, some of that does happen. And then it has this focal point with the face there that draws you in. And, and so I, I think there's something to that. Um, I'll, I'll stop there and let you guys jump in. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I want to view this kind of like against, um, and I know that Ethan would find this absolutely fucking preposterous and disgusting. Uh, <laughs> Hit me. Um, Hit me. With, the, with the Moroccans. So, oh, um, you don't. <laughs> uh, so, so th th this is my thinking. So, you know, I, I watched a few of your videos with Patrick Heron. I, I watched um, your come out, come outside Picasso versus Matisse. And uh -huh. um, yeah, so I, uh, and you pointed out some things that, you know, I didn't quite uh, notice before. Or, yes, like it, like w when I was talking about earlier about um, the difference between balance versus a balancing act, right? Mm -hmm. it, like an ongoing process. Yeah. It's not merely enough that you know here we have a Moroccan, uh, you know, um, uh, with uh, you know a headdress, and here we have plants, right? That are similar circles, right? Uh, we can't, you know, just arbitrarily put lines across his headdress. Um, uh, but here, this fulfills a different function, right? It's not balanced, but it is a balancing act. You add something, you take something away. There's a kind of you know refraction going on. Um, the fact that here we have this, you know, this balcony with this L, but here, you know, you have like a similar, I, I'm not exactly sure what this part is, it, you know, um, but it, it's, a, it's a similar kind of idea, right? It's a similar shape, but 
it's it's also yeah. you know it's more rounded uh it goes up higher right it's definitely a different set of colors very very um, well observed very well observed that um uh, both um uh, the limb of the turbid man and the kind of the um uh, the arm the kind of the balustrade of the balcony yeah kind of make a pincer for that black right in the off center yeah. right yeah and, and you know I, when i look at these um i'm not exactly what to call them uh these like sort of you know on top of the balcony like little bits in the arc yeah in the architecture. yeah like, like stone, yeah, stonework yeah yeah, yeah. You, you'd always see this in, like moroccan architecture then i was looking at it and you see these diagonal lines coming through and you sort of expect them to match up right i mean here you have a line that could be sort of you know matching up here matching up there but you know uh and from another direction, right? Uh, you know, this could match like literally, you know, any one of these points, right? So you also yeah. get a bit of that kind of refraction. You pointed out, you know, you have a prayer uh, rug here yeah. that goes well with, you know, some some of the shapes there. Um, but just to go well, back, I was going to say what what like before before we move on, what I was going to what I've recently observed is that I've always I've never seen this painting in person, um, uh, uh, unfortunately, um, but I always assumed that that little kind of that little um assemblage of uh, little gray blocks in the top left quadrant of the painting with the balcony um, uh, mm -hmm. um basically forming like a ladder across it i always thought that that was part, all part of one little architectural structure i realized recently from looking at the drawing the preparatory sketch of it that no actually the action we're seeing in the foreground of the painting is actually taking place on the balcony and that that little railing is actually um, um, trailing, forming the cupola around the little frontal scene that we're seeing in the foreground. Mm -hmm. So that actually the, the the scene the scene in front of us is actually suspended, and the architecture is actually the city in the background. And that the 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 little space must be the interior of a door opening on the the right hand side inside or down down the stairs. It's um, uh, it's very very curious. Uh, do you find any kind of danger with that? So, for example, you just said that um, uh, you know, you had this impression of the painting, but looking at some of the uh, preparatory drawings, you now realize that you know the intention was different. Uh, it, well, not really. It, it's not. It's not a different intention. It's just um. Uh, it's just the way I saw it. It's, uh, oh, 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 oh yeah, but but uh, so yeah, I, I shouldn't have phrased in that way. But but basically, what I'm saying is so based purely on what you see in the painting here before you without you know having access to any you know prep drawings do you think you know just conceptually having like the prep drawings uh, uh like do you think that additional information uh can be used for understanding this painting as is because as is maybe well, you wouldn't come to that conclusion it's a, it's a it's the, the painting the painting is the painting though i mean yeah, like yeah. Um, uh, like uh this this maybe gets back to kind of what we were talking about, um, or, or what or what you mentioned, Alex, in terms of like uh, you know meaning and interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, interpretation is just an, an expediency, a way into the painting. It's um, a, it's a way to um, uh, just um, uh, to kind of find your footing if you're kind of like like um, uh, but you know the actual meaning of the work. I mean, like again, the whole point is you can't really kind of um offer something adequate without it basically being a kind of reduction or a kind of a poetic kind of metaphor really i mean like you can't you can't just say you can't just 
you can't make it uh, turn transform into a list that replaces the painting and you can't um, uh, literalize the thing and just talk about it as if it were an object among other objects mm -hmm. like you have to you have to it it's a it is a balancing act of sorts to kind of like try and kind of do this do aesthetics in this mm -hmm. way but i mean like interpretation you know, does is it better is it more comprehensive is it more adequate to know that that is part of that bit or that is part of that bit to to know for sure what the actual spatial geometry of the people no it's not because it's been left deliberately ambiguous like recklessly ambiguous even mm -hmm. like so it's like you know it, it courts in ambiguities that's that's part of it and like um, uh, and that that's the freedom of modernist painting if you will I think, you know, the whole reward of painting is that it's a thing that you repeatedly return to and you repeatedly find new things in it. I expect to find new things in great works. Mm. I expect to come back and see something new or something that, you know, um, something that, um, you know, just just changes it. You know, because mm. like, I think that's the thing. If we were just to talk about the painting as um, again, a list of qualities or a list of explanations. This is what this represents. This is how it, or or just as an object, we would still be unable to explain how change comes about in these artworks. When the artworks themselves are unchanging, they're replete objects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, and, and yeah. I, I, I think that's to the advantage of art, right? Like one thing that I yeah. didn't notice that you pointed out is like, um, you know, uh, here we have the prayer rug and then in the side, the prayer rug seems to like what? It seems to like change shape a little bit, right? That doesn't seem to make yeah. sense. But in the context of, uh, you know, some of the other distortions, it sort of does. And, you know, it, it, it's very clever, right? Um, I, I, I was surprised though, uh, uh, when you when you said that this, th this in your estimation is, is the greatest, uh, uh, painting in the 20th century. 20th century, yeah. Yeah, P partly because I, I guess my question is, so when when you're going over, um, and, you know, we could sort of, you know, uh, assume from the get-go, right, that you can never fully explain a, a great work of art, fine. But when it came to your explanations, um, a, a lot of it did sort of end up as you know, we, we ultimately have a list, right, of uh, things that have, you know, reverb elsewhere. We have circles, you know, upon circles. We have uh, uh, these shapes here that are sort of cleverly distorted, you know, with the other uh, people praying there. Um, and and we, we could, you know, spend a long time and probably, you know, because uh, it, it is very well done, uh, every time that we would look at it, we would probably find something new, which is a good thing. Uh, but, I, you know, I wonder just conceptually if this is the extent right uh, when it comes to discussing great painting um if this is the extent uh, of of what must be discussed are we just sort of like creating essentially a, a listicle like when do we have that transition from a painting that's maybe sort of clever has interesting features where exactly do we make that transition uh from that into like genuine greatness because to me like th that difference between meaning and interpretation i think i can make an argument for greatness out of that right but if you mm. view are differently like like what would your answer to that be do you believe do you believe this is a great painting um i would have because like i said uh when it comes you, to visual like, based on these reproductions of course like and these reproductions can never 
yeah, really well, do justice to the paintings. Well, well, like I said earlier, I think visual art is my is the thing of weak is that so I'm trying to spend more time. But I think at a minimum, I would say this is a very well done, you know, excellent, clever painting, right? The style of, of what this is, like like paintings in this kind of mode, uh, I would imagine this would be, you know, among uh, the best for that reason. Uh, but it, it's it's it, it, I I would it would have never crossed my mind to say that this would be you know the greatest of the 20th century. I would have to say like it, it would probably be something maybe from Picasso simply because I, I I can do much more of that narrative right much more of that you know let's sort of view this a little bit a little bit in the way that we might view a, a poem or a novel right um, and. But but anyway, uh, uh, me, me, I don't so know if you have an answer so to that. It's funny but... because this, this painting is is probably one of the most <laughs> Picassoid of any of the paintings that Matisse ever did. Yeah, that's um, true. That's true. Yeah. I think you know to return to kind of like Greenbergian ideas or like Heron Heronesque ideas. Um, formalism, the reward of formalism, uh, insofar as it applies to painting, for me, is you know, talk, we talk about things like balance or composition or color you know what, what are we talking about those things sound rather vague and boring um it, it simply becomes the case that you know when we we are trying to talk about painting which is what we're trying to do and it's what we're talking about talking about in a way um when one talks about painting it gets very easy to get lost trying to kind of say things that sound important it gets very easy to get lost in a certain kind of breathless sort of waxing poetic kind of way of talking um it does certainly for me um it's much better as well as we, we, we talked about objectivity as well i think when we talk about painting if we stand in front of paintings like say in an art gallery and i think this is the best way to talk about to compare paintings to paintings to sort of to like to act that's where the real proximity of qualities and failures becomes apparent i think Mm -hmm. But when we're in front of paintings to ask ourselves, which painting has the better color? Tricky, tricky question. But immediately we're talking about something that's there, which is present, which is concrete, which is, you know, there on the surface, which inheres in the painting. And like, so I would ask you, when you're looking at paintings, when you're looking at this painting, does this painting have good color? Well, what does that mean compared to other paintings? Does this painting have good color? Does this painting have a good, interesting, uh, you know, remarkable composition, would you say? Does it have, you know, what, what would you recognize in a good painting? Well, you know, I would expect in a good painting, emotion, whatever that would mean. I would expect detail, space. Hell, painting is illusion, right? There has to be some sort of space in there. It doesn't have to be deep space, but some kind of idea of space. These paintings that I tried to talk about, these painters I tried to highlight, are painters who I all think are taking sort of pictorial language, the language of kind of paint, the sort of the metaphors of paint, the syntax of paint, and are trying to do things that are difficult. Sometimes they are kind of, you know, they don't lend themselves well, but I mean, like, but I, here in this painting, I think we get all sorts of strange kind of, uh, I, I would I would say on the one hand kind of abstract things happening but all sorts of dialectical kind of things happening too some sort of conversation of signs and countersigns claims and sort of different sort of spatial like um, uh, different spatial kind of uh, di different sort of 
spatial declarations, different kind of different, a varied kind of uh, a, a variance of paint only touch, a different kind of surface. I think, you know, the more I look, the more I'm seeing Cezanne in there. I mean, kind of like the ovals in particular, like, um, um, I don't know, like, I, I don't want to get caught digressing about Cezanne, but, um, yeah. uh, but I, th I, 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 again, I would, every day, I will stand up and defend this painting. And I can like, but I mean, I do think kind of that's the, the like, um, the urgency. I said in a recent Rilke on Cezanne video, quoted Rilke saying kind of like, you know, if, uh, you know, like, um, uh, like yeah, painting has to be reckless. Good painting has to be reckless. Like, um, uh, otherwise, it's you're know, not trying hard enough. It's not like it's. I, I think Matisse is is a, is an interesting painter, and it's like always with great art from the past, from now. Like, there will be a part of you that resists it or wants to kind of or isn't re ready to like accept what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like. I don't see that as an arrogant thing. Like, oh, I'm ahead of you. That's literally the way these painters work. It's a slow thing. I don't know anyone who's ever looked at a Cezanne and like fallen head over heels in love. I don't know anyone who's like seen Cezanne and gone like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. This is like the God of painting. You know, like, no, like even I, when I first saw Cezanne, I was slightly kind of repulsed. I, it was a, the first Cezanne I ever saw was in a, an almanac of impressionist paintings. And it was like, it was one of his late bathers paintings. And I found it kind of a bit off putting the way that kind of you seem to have spent more time painting the buttocks of the bathers mm -hmm. than their faces. These weird slab-like bodies. Like I, I did, I, I just didn't, you know, I do, it's so easy with painting. One glance, you decide. One glance, you move on. What mm -hmm. brings you one back and what explains the difference when you look at a painting and suddenly it's remarkable. Yeah. This is what uh, you get. Yeah, that, 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 that's actually a very good point. Um, uh, I, I think it's very easy for people to be dismissive of uh, of painting simply because, like you know, when it comes when it comes to like you know reading a poem, even right, you at least need to sort of understand the relationship between the lines. Uh, but if you just get, you know, let's say like a landscape or whatever, just like a purely, especially if it's like realistic, right? Um, if you have just like a purely like visual representation, people file it away in their heads as, oh yeah, I've seen that sort of thing before. I know what this is about next, right? You can't really do that uh, as easily with, with other art forms. Um, and, and, but again, the reason why I wanted to talk about uh, the Moroccans here is to to bring this uh, back to here. Too. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, when I was listening to your comments uh, in the video, as well as uh, uh, Patrick uh, Heron's uh, comments, I, I started practicing. I was like, all right. So if I sit down, you know, with this yeah. painting can I say some similar things? And um, the reason I asked you that question about like what, you know, if we're doing more than just creating a list of, you know, clever aspects or, you know, uses of color or whatever in a, in a painting, um, if it's more than a list, uh, what prevents me from, for example, like doing the following? So when I look at this painting, uh, before I even get to the kind of, you know, narrative elements, which I will, uh, just like pure, pure, pure visuals, right? So we have this, like, it seems like it's some kind of oil lantern here. Uh, uh, very much stands out, right, from the rest. A couple things stand out, actually. We have, you know, uh, the white hair of her kind of scarf or whatever, uh, very prominent here compared to all the other colors, right? And, and the fact that you have just so much white in one area, next to it, you have not even so much black, right? It's, you know, you have some green, you have some black, you have definitely a lot of dark blues. Uh, 
you have the same pattern here in her belt, right? She, using, you know, like using this oil lamp, right? Th these are not straight lines. It's very curved. It's rounded. It's something you could see in a still life. Um, you have the same kind of quality here going in the band there. Uh, 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 when it comes to, you know, having a balancing act, right? You're not canceling out, you know, the, the this shape by using this white shape, but you still have a balancing act, right? They're sort of doing something to one another. Um, the fact that uh, here we have this table, right? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a certain kind of thickness here. We have the same th thickness in this band going on in, the, um, in this uh, coat that she's wearing. Uh, uh, when you have Patrick Heron talking about this, um, not this one, sorry. Uh, oh. Where is it? Anyway, uh, when Patrick Heron is talking about how the uh, 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 how the shutter sort of framing, you know, the uh, the painting, it, it it's giving you a depth that if he had decided to do things in a more normal, normal perspective, it just loses so much. I mean, you could say uh, something similar about this here, right? Like if you if you simply had this this like orange wall in the back, and the whole thing was closed off, and you had that orange wall, um, you wouldn't get necessarily that much of a sense of depth, except you know what's going on here uh, in the front. Um, um, having and also this uh, this second uh, I guess little column here right it's sort of like behind the wall um, so that that frames frames things in terms of perspective we have these undulations in the coat that weirdly enough follow the undulations uh, in the wall but you can imagine both both things being true you could have an oversized coat therefore it's going to have undulations because it's oversized on a smaller body you could also imagine a wall being built in this way and the fact that um, you know he decided to have this like little column here and a little bit of of uh, uh, the, I guess, a little bit of the green landscape in between, you know, that adds something. So the point I'm trying to make is uh, before I even get to the, to the narrative aspect, I could sort of rattle off all the different ways that uh, this painting works in a painterly fashion with much the same vocabulary that you use for the Moroccans and much the same vocabulary that Patrick Haram I use. And then, of course, because this is more kind of, you know, uh, 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 a more kind of realistic painting, uh, it's it's even a little bit easier to have a narrative that you don't necessarily get with the Moroccans. So here, the fact that it's an oversized coat, right? Well, you can think of, you know, uh, any number of situations, right? Life situations. It could be because, you know, this is a poor family and this is, you know they have to share this coat whenever they leave the the premises um maybe it's because uh, she prefers this coat because it's warmer maybe she's wearing something she's not supposed to wear right those things might seem a little bit flimsy but i mean they're, they're, they're part of the reality of the painting right you can't just you can't just pretend like they don't exist um uh so uh, anyway uh and you know the fact they have the illumination from from the side uh the the fact that, like, I, I, I didn't notice this before, but I, when I was looking at this, uh, this recently, I recognized it again. Um, the fact that you have the hand here, right? Like this, you know, child's hand. Uh, it's almost like a very sort of adult meditative pose, right? It's not something that you would expect, you know, like if you're thinking of like purely academic art, you probably wouldn't have a feature like that feature, right? And if you want to say that this is like Soviet art, um, this is kind of the point that I was getting at. Like, yes, this is Soviet realism esque in the sense that you could imagine, you know, uh, the Soviet government sort of mandating art that looks like this and even, you know, hanging up this uh, uh, painting as an example of, you know, uh, let us celebrate the peasantry, let us celebrate the proletariat. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, uh, you, uh, even if they were to do that, uh, 
you could still see much here beyond, you know, like go, going outside of what Soviet realism tends to be as a cliche, right? As something that just sort of crushes culture into this motion. Everybody has to eat, you know, from the same gruel. Um, so anyway, this would be my commentary on, on the painting. And, you know, uh, for what it's worth, uh, you can't really apply like some of the set of narratives that I, that, that I applied here to the Moroccan. So, uh, like just based on that or your other thoughts, like how would you, how would you like attack this painting as just, um, you know, generic realism? Like what, what would be your main objection here, I guess? Well, you said that, um, um, I think it was very interesting. You said that, um, uh, you can't kind of ignore the, the, the figure. You can't ignore what the painting is conveying, what it's describing. Yeah. You can't get past that it's a painting of a girl yeah. in, a, in, a, in a lovely rustic log barn or something. Um, I, I was actually, in my mind, looking at this picture while you were talking, actually I was trying to unsee all the figurative content. I was trying to will myself in my mind to almost squint. You know, when you squint, it shuts down your frontal your frontal vision, which is the part of your brain that kind of basically is, you know, the mechanical stimuli that's involved with. So basically you get a more sort of concentrated, like when, I, when you squint, mm -hmm. no, like, I mean, like you're right in a way, you kind of can't get past the, the kind of subject matter. And that's exactly what I hold against the painting. Like, cause I mean, like it, it is a kitsch painting. It's a painting of a sympathetic little peasant girl. Oh, look how poor she is. Like it's Victorian, man. I mean, it's, maybe, it's, maybe, right? It's maybe, Victorian. Maybe. And like, it's it's it, like, I'm a, I look at Victorian pre-Raphaelite painting. Yes, there were little shabby paintings of peasant girls with gnarly hands. Yes, there were endless discussions in the press about, oh, these paintings of peasants with hands, my goodness. Where, this, is, this is English provincial, like, come on. Like, and maybe Corot can get away with it because that's all they knew of realism. That's what realism was. But this is a painter, like, working in the 21st century, you know? He can choose to paint whatever he wants. He chooses to paint this. But, but, but I mean, I'm like, but, but, but if, we can't, we can't work, just say peasants are off limits now. I mean, we can't do that, right? Like, it's just not. Yeah, but look at but what kind of, but this, look at it. It's like a little. But I am, but, but that's my objection, girl, though. Little, that's my objection. A little sympathetic peasant girl. Like, I mean, like, how else are you supposed to feel about it? It's just there for you to feel sorry for it. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that? No, lazy? no. That, that I mean, my, my impression wasn't necessarily that this is poverty. I mean, the, the point I was making is, I'm, this can she's be an example girl, of poverty. No, no, nonetheless, she's a rustic peasant girl, nonetheless. Uh, it, it, it could be. We don't know, for example, the size of a farm, right? Maybe she's one of those uh, um, uh, 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 kulaks, right? Maybe she has a larger uh, farm. Farm. Like my point is, like we we can't we can't Look just. At her face. It's horrible. Her face isn't integrated uh, but, with the rest of the composition. It's like a horrible illustration from a Merry Christmas card from the 1950s. Okay, so so so, so that that that's something I think objective that we could focus on. So when you're saying that the 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 face is you know sort of like uh, uh, out of uh, uh, harmony here, what exactly like yeah, do, you, do you mean? Like like what what exactly does that mean? Well, it's 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 just kind of like it's like the the style of it is like blatantly illustrational. Like one feels almost like kind of like that was copied from a photograph, and the rest is kind of sketchingly filled in this kind of impromptu way. And like the painting style is just it's just the same repetitive kind of slashing brush strokes. It's too literal. It's in these patches 
which again, you get much more variants of different things, different um, uh, marks and touches and Cezanne, different, different kind of colors. I mean, I'll give it to you. This is one of a better composition of Shiwe Tudes than I've seen. Usually they're kind of very boring, kind of like horizontal paintings, but like, they, although this is a kind of upright portrait painting, She's slightly off center, but still the center's the center, the figure's there, the surrounds are the surrounds. And like, I mean, yeah, you're right to point out these these kind of architectural echoes within the frame and all this other stuff. But, uh, I mean, like, again, that's kind of the, the language of painting for me. And it's just kind of, uh, yeah. I don't know. Can, like, can, can we, can is, we do this, is this exciting for you? you know? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'd use the phrase exciting, but I, I was just surprised to hear that you know you just uh, said GY two was just completely you know Soviet esque and not really uh, worth looking at for that reason. And he, sounds, I, he seems like a very nice person. He seems like a very nice person from like what I've read of is like um, uh, what I've read of him. So it's you know it's nothing. It's nothing personal. Well, I, I, I guess I, I guess just what I'm trying to get at is, uh, you know, um, when we get to those like objective portions, you know, the, the things that we could all sort of talk about, like, you know, how, how uh, colors, you know, sort of overlap or, you know, is this an example of a sort of, you know, clever reverb? Is this, you know, an example of like a further balancing act? I mean, like even other things like, you know, um, generally speaking, if you have uh, a, a portrait of someone, right, I guess you could mostly call this a portrait if you have a portrait of someone um being able to say that i don't know whether they're sitting or standing or crouching like you can in this painting i mean that's also kind of a clever addition that i wouldn't necessarily think right unless unless i'm gonna paint i'm a painter right um uh, on, on top of the other features like it, it just strikes me like uh, some of the things that always you would women, say always women have the same faces they all have the same faces they're always far more kind of detailed than the rest of the surroundings so the surround, let's say it's always- Well, they're inbred peasants. They're inbred peasants. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> then I'd, I'd expect them to then have like antennae, you know, like make it a bit more interesting. But like, they all have these kind of uh, unnaturally flushed cheeks and these kind of little like, like, like prim little rosebud lips. And, they're, like, they're, and they, they're never quite integrated with the rest of it. So it's always like the composition's this kind of central patch around which everything kind of flows. And it's like, just, just paint, unless he does the- his elongated little party paintings mm. where, you know, he has a tribe sat in a circle. And again, it's it's not very interesting the way he composes them. Kind of, if you compare the composition to a Poussin or a Tintoretto or anything like that, they're, they're really, they look like just illustration. They look like, and try to think about these paintings as real paintings, by the way. Like we can look at these miniaturized on the screen and they look quite handsome, I'm sure. Or like handsome little book covers even. This would be a very good book cover, don't you think? Like, um, uh, but think about this as an actual fucking painting in your house. You want to fucking live with this painting? Like, it's, it's like, it's well, horrible. To, to it's be like fair, horrible. To, it's well, like, to, I'm not a Victorian factory owner. To, to be like, fair, I don't the vast majority though, the vast majority of great paintings I would never want in my house. I just would find that too pretentious and difficult to live with, right? Which is another thing. Like, you know, there's a huge- I want to, I give me a, give me a, Give me a fucking Cezanne, man. Like, that's what, that's why I thought that. Imagine living with that. Yeah, well, well with, with, with a Cezanne, oh. well, that's the thing. With a Cezanne, you could live with it because, you know, most people would be repulsed by it, right? And, and you know, that that's that, 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 that's part of the thing, right? Like, like, like something that is so sort of like, you know, obviously great, I probably would not ever want on my walls. Like, I like imagine putting a oh. fucking Caravaggio on your it, wall. Like, is, it's just this weird. This is what we need to talk about, Alex. We need to talk about architecture and painting. Because you, you mentioned architecture kind of offhandedly, but architecture does relate to painting. Remember, painting originates 
It begins from the murky depths of antiquity, from mosaic and mural painting. From the beginning, architecture is the, is the, is the, the law that governs the pictorial composition. It, it's, it's everywhere. It's in that rectangle. That rectangle, that orthogonal shape, is an architectural form, that mm -hmm. square. And so kind of everything you find in it is usually a kind of a reiteration or a kind of elaboration or a kind of, let's say, uh, uh, it's taking those architectural um, forms, it's shaking them into more complex pictorial forms. Um, so, but then finally, when painting gets off the wall onto canvas, then painting has to like, it has a lot of other things it can do, a lot of other opportunities it can do, like how it really meets and interacts with that rectangle and how that painting integrates with the architecture. A great test of a great painting is to put it on your wall. Put it on your wall and try and live with it. Look at it every day. If I were to show you my wall, I have reproductions from art books pasted everywhere. And if you were to talk to my partner, he would tell you they change regularly. Like putting paintings next to other paintings, reproductions, again, can only take you so far. But you see, you see certain paintings fall away. You think a painting's great. You look at it, you go, fucking hell, this is an impressive painting. It's handsome. You put it on the wall next to another painter. Something happens. Something becomes apparent you didn't see before. And like that's, that's, Cezanne always survives this litmus test. Like Cezanne makes other painters look weak. He, he like he like outshines anything you put next to him, like. But a painting has to look good on your wall. It has to work, kind of like. And sometimes there's artwork that can only work in a way is maintained by a gallery environment, by an artificial curated installation space. But for me, great painting in a way has to be robust. You know, you can hang it in a gallery, but you know, what about the domestic? What about domestic spaces? In a way, painting has taken such a long time to get out of the altar, to get out of the altarpiece. Abstract expressionism was dealing with a big hangover of the altarpiece in a way. This was something that Rothko and uh, Newman kind of were in a way obsessed with, like making abstract altars, you know? But like, I'm interested in art that, and Cezanne is a domestic artist in a way. You could hang Cezanne. You know, he doesn't require like a massive, huge wall. You know, most of them are quite, modest they're quite you know they're quite modestly sized and like so there's all kinds of things that one needs to consider as painting painterly problems you know it's not just the content as well it's like it's everything that's happening with it with without the painting too those pressures too like um uh, what can a painting withstand mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, now that I think about it, I mean, because I'm so kind of like perfectionistic myself, like even like, you know, the formatting, like in a novel or whatever, I want to make sure the spacing is all right. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine painters, at least many of them would say, okay, so I eventually want this put in a wall somewhere, even if it's at a museum. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure that it sort of looks, you know, okay, whatever that, that means in that context. Although, again, to go back to kind of like, you know, maybe this is more subjective, but I, I can't imagine living with most uh, great paintings, right? I could imagine living with maybe, you know, maybe some good paintings, but it, it's just kind of, it's, it's, too, it's too daunting to be like, you know, I have great books, but they're, they're fucking closed, right? I don't have like quotes all over my walls of all my favorite novels, right? But I can imagine just being too overwhelmed and too crowded out uh, what psychologically. Is painting, what, is, what is painting for? 
you have to ask yourself. And this is a valid question. What what is what role does painting serve today? Because it used to be like we fucking knew what painting was for. It was for like the fucking church. It was for the fucking noble people. That's the only way you could afford to make that stuff by like, having those guys as clients. And so like all like, painting was basically that. Modernism, it's like, oh, what the fuck is painting? Who the fuck will buy this stuff? Like what is, you know, like uh, what is the, what's the, what's the risk? And like, so, I mean, so for me, like it, it is this kind of this like broader question of kind of like, well, what is our criterion here then? Like, what are the things that we are holding up and saying, this is what's kind of valuable and credible about painting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, so like, it's, it's not that kind of like, you know, like we were talking like, uh, I think in our emails or correspondences that like, um, like about like theory, like painter theory or kind of knit, knit theory or whatever. I'm not sure if I have, let's say like an overall theory about like painting, you know, like j- just that I'm aware of painting as a continuity, as mm-hmm. this thing, which kind of like, comes out of like you know like it where you know successively moment to moment kind of artists are doing things to kind of like to summarizing and kind of contributing to the overall things that are happening before i i see it as this cumulative thing and so kind of like i can't help but kind of like notice certain things that i feel are there for me you know that i that, uh, that are kind of like there for kind of like my eye like, I'm, you know, I'm just absorbing this fucking stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's like, like, I hope I don't come off as too, like, aggressive, like, macho and kind of, like, asserting this sort of stuff. But, like, the, 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 again, that's fine. That's fine. This is, what, this is di- what this brand is. It's fine. Do it. I'm at a disadvantage in a way because there is, again, such a kind of uh, a panoply of just, like, uh, rhetoric about kind of painting that kind of we're also ready to use. We're also kind of ready to talk mm-hmm. about. Like, like she way too, like... Again, like, it's not even that I think he's, like, a particularly kind of offensive painter to me, even, really. Like, it's just that kind of, like, it's just such an easy kind of painting to kind of praise, in a way. And, like, in a way how, when I was younger, kind of when I went into art school, I was kind of, like, say, like, a realist kind of illustrator. And kind of my whole thing was I was going into art school to kind of, like, destroy, like, you know, I wasn't against abstract stuff. I was against conceptual art, all that other stuff. And I kind of went in and I found there was just as many kind of fucking shit, kitsch, mm-hmm. kind of lame, kind of figurative artists as there were fucking abstract artists. That yeah. kind of most people kind of didn't really think about art history at all. I talked to most people, they didn't fucking know any fucking painters, except for like who was hot on the scene right then. Or I talked to other people and they, you know, they didn't, they weren't, they didn't have any kind of like, uh, you know, it's almost like art was just like a, a, a thing they did. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like, like, it's like, I need to know all this fucking shit. It's not that I think all this shit is necessary, Alex. It's not I think this is all necessary, Joel. Like, I think, you know, I I think they can be expedient, but this is just all kind of like, I'm just like telling you kind of like what I'm kind of getting. Like, that's kind of, it's like, it's what I'm kind of picking up of on that level, which I find kind of like the painting level. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is why we're we're talking, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I uh, uh, just just having uh, again, like you're you're not making unreasonable statements, right? Even if I were to disagree about the Moroccans being the best painting, I mean, it is clearly an extremely well done painting, right? Uh, if you were, ta- you know, if you were making unreasonable statements, or or if I saw your videos and I thought they were unreasonable, we probably wouldn't be talking because it'd be a waste of time. 
Um, yeah. But can we, yeah, can we so. do this though? This might be helpful. So earlier, Ethan, you mentioned you mentioned Chardin as an artist who yeah. you know has has been successful with some of the same kind of subject matter as as Jiwe too. Do you have any particular paintings that you would want to share here that we could all look at and and maybe provide a well um, a, a different um, example? I, I would I would um, um, let me let me I would have to like look them up right now. There there is a painting that. Um, there's a painting he did of a of a girl washing up a bronze pot, that's mm -hmm. uh, particularly great, and I think is actually would um, uh, be very um, uh, apt for kind of right now when we're looking at a painting of a kind of a mm -hmm. a peasant girl by um, uh, two. So like, yeah. um, hang on, girl with a. I might just like look at what it's called and then ask uh, Alex to find it or something. Ah, uh, here we go. Ah, uh, crap. I'm having to do it on my phone, so I'm a bit like... Um, oh, okay. Um, what's the uh, title? I mean, I could just do it here if you want. Yeah, hang on. Oh, look up! Look up! Uh, look up! A painting called "The Young School Mistress" by Chardin. Yeah, look! Look that. That one. Sorry about that. Like, um, uh, <laughs> my phone is crap. The Young School Mistress. That's a very good one. Uh, let me see if I get a good. Um... Okay. All right, this? Yep, that's it. Now, compare this painting to Two's painting. Um, with all the forced sentiment of that previous painting, look here. Look, look at how much genuine warmth there is in this painting, just off the bat. Like, like there's there's no kind of like, like this this really is tender. Like, uh, Trevor Winkfield in his essay on um, Chardin said, warmth and empathy is almost like the moral code for Chardin. Even when he's doing still lives, he has like this empathy, this sympathy for it. Like almost this delectable quality, you know, like, um, um, but again, not this kind of cosmetic, like, like a stoked up confectionery. You know, I complain about two being almost like this belle ponture kind of painter. In painting, if you have the right equipment, you know, if you have a little bit of a studio training, if you kind of just kind of like mix stuff together and brush about, you kind of can sort of massage some interesting stuff. You know, it's very, you can get some interesting stuff happening very easily with painting. And there's a certain kind of painter that kind of stops just as something interesting is starting to happen. I always feel like there's something kind of lazy and finished about two. It's a bit too gestural, it's illustrational. He turns the brush making to a kind of a, just a just a, an effect but Chardin like again this this painting doesn't quite do the surface justice but there is a real an interesting touch here I mean just look at the wall um, uh, the the um, uh, look at the clothes the skin everything here has just this moisture to it this kind of um, uh, this glow but then the composition itself is quite interesting actually it's in a way the composition is 
sort of oddly precarious and slightly grotesque. This grotesque? Like, what do you mean by grotesque? Well, follow the profile of that girl on the right, mm -hmm. her nose down to the plunge of her breast and kind of this strange, odd kind of dull grey silhouette it creates right in the centre of the painting. Mm. Like the, this sort of tilt, this sort of ostrich turkey neck kind of thing is really kind of quite odd. But in a way, it, 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 it works. You look in certain Chardin paintings, he often struggles with this foreshortening of the elbow here. Here, he pulls it off. Very beautiful how he gets that and how it's almost fo follow from the top of her head down to her elbow on here. Look at the, just look at his touch. Um, uh, you, you, he's you, next, look at, look at that hat. Look at that hat. Look, 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 look at, look at what he does to the features here. How he almost makes her a bit more, makes her a bit pixie-like. But not, it's not too much. He doesn't, it's not too much exaggeration that it becomes um, um, literally grotesque. Oh, yeah, look at that. A bit like Courbet, actually. He has that, he has that quite, quite kind of that burnished surface where he, where you get a kind of almost a kind of, a, a sort of a, a film, a semi-transparent film on certain things. And he does have this sort of slight relief where you'll see the the white as a kind of acreous, nacreous kind of build-up. Mm -hmm. A bit like Raphael, how he paints. But Raphael would never do a hat like that, or even kind of, even the face of this child. Look, look at how this sort of green, look, look at the, the transition from this, these pinks here. Look, we talk about the flushed cheeks of the child in the previous paint. Here you go. Here's a blushing child. Nothing sentimental here. Nothing forced. Nothing hallmark Christmas. Here, look at that green. Look at that almost like verdigris on copper. And here that... Oh, and yes, look at look all these, all these bits here. He must really love Titian. Uh, I, I wanted to oh, ask, look, look ask here, you look, about look the... At, um... Look at the area around here, earlobe and her hairline. When I'm talking about the build-up of um, whites and the sort of the, the way he sort of turns the... Certain painters like Chardin would leave bare canvas to create the highlights, but here Chardin does the opposite. He almost builds up the highlights to a sort of a slight relief. Look at that. When you look at the way that two breaks the surface of his paintings, there's no logic to it at all. There's no real sense of volumetric clarity. It's again, it's just a kind of, it's just done from a photo. And then he just sketchily fills in what he half imagines, or that's the way Victorian painters would have done it. So like, again, it's just painting in a way that like, we don't need, you know. Yeah, just to look his pure revelation with painters like Chardin. Do you guys well, still hear me? Yeah, when you, um, I wanted to ask about the, um, about the Rouge. So you, you originally uh, characterized uh, this painting as just having this kind of overwhelming, you know, perhaps non-sentimental warmth, right? Um, and especially, you know, in, in something that involves a, uh, a teacher and a child, right? And, you know, the, the, the child is uh, sort of perhaps straining to learn. Um, you could expect in that situation, you know, rouge on the cheeks, but you you objected to, I don't know why this is like, oh, sorry. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, this is that's just what I mean. Look at a painting like that. Wait, hold on a second. Um, is this is this still sh sharing or what? what just no, you just exited the share. Oh. I can see you in the main and the main thing, and now Joel. Yeah. Um, so I mean, if one of them is being called, uh, you know, uh, very warm, right, and the rouge in the cheeks is allowed. What it, like I I'm still not sure what your objection is here. If, if, like, if you're in, trying in to say of... that if you're trying to say that the cheeks are more red in this painting because it's a more kind of red um uh, color palette, like um uh, you know, again I don't accept that. Uh, but then again I think the kind of no my question the was the color the color as light within this painting is also incoherent. It doesn't. I mean, where's the light source in this painting? Well, what do you mean? Where's I mean, I, where, the light in the painting? Where's it, it coming it, from? It must be. It must be coming from outside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It must be coming from outside and capturing. Then where's the, 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 where's the glow from under her chin coming from? Wait. Let me see, let me zoom that in. It. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you, you, you self piece you self pieces is, of light the, on the coat, though. I mean, it's, it's, a totally, it's, not, it's, it's it's not it's not unrealistic to accept, you know, to to expect lighting on the chin. But what I was getting at just about the rouge is, um, you know, it it, 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 it just didn't uh, it just didn't strike me to sort of critique this painting as Soviet realism. And, and you know, part of the objection would be, you know, it's a kind of stereotypical rouge on the cheeks. Well, if warmth is, you know, uh, uh, allowed okay. with the school teacher and the rouge in the cheeks is, is part of what is allow allows that to happen, why is that less acceptable here? I, I guess I'm, I'm just not really getting the objection. Not getting the objection. It's, it's, oh. It's it's the difference between Beethoven and Danny Elfman. It's 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 you know it's and, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here because no, no, no. it's, 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 like, it's it's perfectly I'm, I'm acceptable just, to like you know not have I'm the passionate words about this right sort of away. Stuff. You know, so like I'm, I welcome the like the ability to kind of like um uh, yeah, but but it's hard to talk about. I get that. You know, it's it, my even bees are just right about with, it. With two, I mean, like again, like I just feel that kind of like. I'm sorry, but like I have to speak. Like I, I would just have to say maybe, maybe you just need to look again. Like that's I possible. This, I'm perfectly open to that. I look at this that, girl. Yeah. I look at this girl, and it's just like it's it's just put there for me to feel a certain way about it. I look at the subjects in Cezanne, and like like even if they are themselves peasants or whatever, the difference here is like is is clear. It like like here we it's just a kind of stoked up illustrational style with these photographed faces kind of they're all deployed the same that's the essence of illustration that kind of like all the eyes are put down in a, the same place the same way and it's just and it's a kind of subject matter that is in of itself just like just totally kind of like just kitsch and dishonest I think it's just a it's just just like it's. I mean, like, what do you? What else do you want? Would a more obvious kind of kitsch would be My Little Pony and shit like that, or Thomas Kincaid. But because this guy uses painterly stereotypes of, you know, John Singer Sargent kind of, you know, look ethnics and uh, peasants, like we're ready to buy it and totally accept it as great painting, and that these painters are like Rembrandt or something. Well, I'm sorry, I reject it. Okay, well, let's let's move on from two. I didn't uh, mean to do this for ninety minutes. I did, which is what ultimately what happened. Uh, I said I, mean, you, I said I would come swinging. About that, that, yeah, that, you, you, yeah, that's you, fine. You, you do have to say too, though. On so that Chardin painting is the first time I've ever seen it, and I will say that on immediate impact, 
the drawing is superior, you know, at yeah. least what, whatever I've understood drawing to be, uh, the, and the modeling of the forms and that kind of thing. I mean, I, c I can see your argument there, certainly, Ethan, and, and um, just the, the choices of what to make uh, as detail and enough detail, and then what to leave as a little bit more, uh, you know, sketchy or unfinished and abstract, like maybe the child's hat, where it's more just some, some, some bits of color uh, rather than, you know, I'd say like the, the, the headmistress's hat is a, a bit more modeled, but, um, and, and, and the lighting too, like I, I see your, your argument there. And, and this is like reminding me in a way, um, it's like a little bit of a Rembrandt Vermeer hybrid almost is like, those are the mm. two artists that kind of come to mind immediately as proxies. When I look at this, um, I think Chardin's better to be honest, like, uh, if, in my, in my, in my estimation, Chardin is the superior of Rembrandt and Vermeer. And okay. like, I, I, I think when the, the praise people give to Vermeer is owed to Chardin, in my opinion. Like, Vermeer is more of a, a photorealist, a kind of, he's, he, he has more to do with photography in a way than painting. And like, that's, that's kind of where his interest really lies. Mm -hmm. uh, but Chardin as a painter is, is much more interesting to me than Vermeer. Like, and, and, and like, honestly, like, I mean, like, you're, I mean, you're a photographer, Joel. Like, like I would ask you, like, I mean, I don't know where color enters into your like practice as a photographer, but like, what would you say like was like the better color between, say, this painting by Chardin and sort of the painting by two? And I'm not trying to kind of lead you, like, like you know my position, but like, what, like, what, like, what says to you better color? No, that's well. I, I I'll comment on that in a second. So I'll say for for my photography, it's eighty or ninety percent black and white. So, right. so it's a little bit different, but there's still tonal considerations and, and lighting is still really important, obviously. So, uh, but I would agree with that. I would say if, if I, um, let's say these were two photographs instead of paintings. And if I took it strictly from that standpoint, then part of it's maybe personal preference. And part of it, I think I could argue for just on a, a scale of better decision-making and, and better, um, whatever you want to call it, better execution, that the Chardin would be superior because I would see that maybe if the two was a photograph, uh, which a lot of people take photographs like that, um, you know, trying to like punch up color and get really bright bits uh, and like certain kinds of, I don't know, more, more powerful colors almost, which doesn't mean better color necessarily so uh the, the subtleties in the chardin and the the way it's lit like this would be a better a better photograph almost certainly as well um, you really you really want to touch everything in the chardin in a way and in a way this is a totally insane thing to feel from a painting like it's like it, you never get that from cezanne i feel but with chardin it's particularly interesting how that how touch relates to it and how just like with a good still life from like, say a Dutch still life, like a Protestant Dutch still life, you wish you could like reach out and take one of the tarts or the cup of wine. In Chardin, you want to touch the woman's sleeve. You want to kind of like, you want to feel the lace between your fingers. You want to run your hands along the wall. You want to kind of like hold her cold fingers between your hands. Like, look, like there is this, and everything's even. He doesn't make one thing more important, like two, where he stokes everything up on the figure. He gives equal treatment to the objects, the background, and the figures. They all have their own touch that differentiates them, but then marries them together, locks them. As Cezanne's, this was Cezanne's metaphor for painting. 
that was his metaphor for painting. You get it in all the best painters. That. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, maybe that's why Cezanne liked to pose some of his figures with interlocking hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Well, the, Alex, do you have anything else to say, or do we maybe want to move on to Cezanne more uh, in a more yeah, targeted, let, uh, quote, um, laser-like way? Yeah, let, let's let's move on to like if we want to talk about more abstract stuff, theoretical stuff. I have some other stuff like that later, but well, what let's, painters? Let's just... you, well, I, I might just to talk about the painters that you guys want to talk about because, like, you know, I can sit and talk about the painter painters I like till the cows come home, and then I've used up all our time. So, like, I want to I want to know kind of the, the painters that you guys are anxious to talk about, or the visual artists even, kind of like um, uh, so that like we can give them the attention that they they they're due. Well, I, I was planning on uh, titling this artifact, uh, thus Strack uh, Pinch. So this was, <laughs> th th this, this was uh, actually, this was uh, actually like supposed to be a little bit kind of like, you know, cause, cause I, I think people sort of get the sense of what me and Joel are into. Uh, your taste is different. The things that you say are, are different. So I did, yeah. you know, I, I, since I went, once I learned that Cezanne was your favorite painter, I was like, let's just do a bunch of those as well. Cause I mean, I, I want those, I, I want perspectives that are not mine right um and i mean i have like a bunch of stuff here but you know we could go on you know until you know so let's well, let's, let's, let's just let's, systematically let's, go through whatever let, yeah. well yeah let's talk about Cezanne then because that because he is a great way to get into other painters irregardless and to get into other artists so much of 20th century art and the past and the past is in Cezanne that's what yeah. he's doing that's Can how I, that's why he's modern He's he's uh he's he's doing what all the Renaissance artists are doing, which is rolling up the art of the past. That's the whole idea of the Renaissance. We're gonna we're gonna absorb all of Greek antiquity and ancient Egypt, and but we're gonna make it better and more harmonious and more stoic and more Catholic. Um, uh, but uh, the Baroque basically becomes when that comes to its highest, most expressionistic point, and then it becomes in a way like um, uh, a kind of a, a really weird kind of continuum of different styles until until about you know uh, napoleon and all this other shit and but mm -hmm. and then you get modernism and then you get french painting like uh but the, the the modernist painter also is having to figure out what the fuck a painter is you know the uh, painting is is now like for a secular culture it's now for the taste of this newly emerging like middle class this bourgeois class um, the intellectual class, like, um, uh, like, but also all these freedoms for painters, you know, like you can paint whatever you want now and the, and, and, uh, paint as a technology developments made in paint itself, the availability of say consumer paints. It used to be that if you want to be a painter, you needed a fucking studio, mate. It was like a whole production. You needed a crew. You need, you know, slaves to grind your paint, prepare your, you know, you'd need, because otherwise you would paint one painting every five, 10 years. And then where the fuck would you be making your money from? But now, now you can paint in your loft. You can buy your paints ready, any color you want. You can make your art and you can sell it to who you want. You can find it. It becomes like, that's the life of the bohemian, right? Um, uh, gigging, the gig. That's, it's, it's, but, uh, and so we see artists at the beginnings of kind of like modernism and realism, basically trying to figure out what their vision is. Now, Corbet and Manet decide to put themselves at the center of their art. That's, what, that's what's important about them. 
it, it like they they take on genre and they take on different conventions in painting but overall the important thing is their vision the important thing is their kind of philosophy of kind of like what painting is about what painting can do what makes painting important and at first it seems jarring and uh uh disjunctive and totally like a break from past a break from tradition now we actually see it's actually really you know in a way it slots in quite easily with tradition and it's sort of you know it's basically ushering tradition into modernism um so there's a whole streak of in a way anti-modernist neoclassicism in modernism such as in Cezanne Cezanne is a the most modern artist who ever lived yet he is totally conventional he paints totally within genres he paints things that are corny, still lives, nudes, landscapes, models, um, fruit, um, memento mori kind of vanitas paintings. Um, early on in his career, he painted slightly more crazy, more kind of like uh, expressionistic, kind of like, you know, Goya-esque paintings, you know, rapes and uh, robbery. Orgies, yeah. Orgies, yeah. You can see the influence of... Um, um, Rubens and sort of other kind of uh, uh, Baroque um, neoclassical painters there, kind of in the sort of the bizarre phantasmagorical sex fantasy stuff. There, there are different Cezannes. This is the difficult thing. There are different Cezannes. Like there's bizarre sex fantasy Cezanne. There's sober stoic realist Cezanne. There's wild like a um, uh, um, reckless expression Cezanne it's uh, and yet kind of again kind of like it's not that we fit painting is a painting you recognize him you recognize his touch you recognize his individual um vision his his um uh, his own um again his own painterly his own painterly vision mm -hmm. like it, it's it's all there I mean this this painting is is um typical of Cezanne, the landscape of Aison-Provence. Yeah, this and is probably my favorite landscape of his, which is why I, I pulled it up. Um, How could he have ever known that just by trying to capture the outlines of um, uh, Mont Saint-Victoire, he would be ushering in a whole, a whole, just this crashing, just like wave of like of different kind of retorts and, and counter kind of like, it's, he, he could never have known and yet there he is. The way that he uses nature as a motif, the, the tree trunk, the, the, the mountain, the, the landscape, like, and his, his, his sense of space. This is the interesting thing. I love, I love the space because th that, that for me is the great thing. I mean, like we talked about Greenberg and he's talking about flatness, that modernist painting is all about flatness. This is where I differ and I am like Heron. I believe that painting should have more in it, not less. I believe painting should have more space, more distance, more different kinds of space, more different articulations of space, more three-dimensional, whatever that means for a two-dimensional uh, construction. That's what mm -hmm. painting is. It's uh, the construction of a three-dimensional space and a two-dimensional surface. Uh, ultimately, that, what is painting? It's a, it's a, it's a taut membrane. It's, a, it's the skin of a drum. You can hit it any other kind of way. You can soft, hard and like you have and then that you have the problem of sustaining these rhythms across what does that have to do with realism you know what does that have to do with these real spaces around me that like maybe Cezanne or any other artist could observe 
what is that thing at which point you integrate these things and try to claim them like in that as only that medium can do mm-hmm. you know because there are physical limits there are your own physical limits but there are the physical limits of painting itself you know marcel duchamp always talked about putting art back in the service of the mind but Art can only serve the mind insofar as the limits of it, the physical limits of of its reality will allow it. You know, you like what's great about Cezanne isn't that he like shatters apart all everything we knew about painting. He takes everything right up to the edge. He makes us more aware of kind of these these various things like in, in painting. These like how like uh, how really in painting what trumps everything and holds sway over everything isn't you know these things that like say artists would play with like say like Manet or Courbet like you know political political trends or artistic trends or genre conventions it was it was a sense of architecture it was a sense of a, a robust firm, solid, enduring structure, um, like the painting could hold its own. And you look at a Cezanne painting and one gets the sense of an amazing solidity. How is that so? Because you have all this voluptuous space and distance and foggy, murky indeterminacy, but also this hard, uh, this hard, solid clarity, this thing which really, you know, it's not, there's nothing weak or or I'm a slack about this painting. Mm. There's nothing, it's John Constable used to say about his paintings, nothing here is neglected. No square inch of this painting is neglected. With bad painting, sometimes one, one's eye gets caught in places, stuck. That's the way I feel about that Xi Wei Tu portrait. Your eye suddenly gets stuck in that little, that little cherubic face. And suddenly everything else is, suddenly everything is just operating around that face. Everything is just in the orbit of that one central locus. But in Cezanne, even though you have all these clearly demarcated and bracketed spaces, there really is no sense of no literal center. Everything has its own equality, its own individual something but never, never, never tries to get above itself. It always ushers you onto the next thing. Um, yeah, like uh, j- just uh, hearing you uh, describe things in that way, I mean, it just kind of, uh, I mean, I've seen this many times, but you know, every time you look at something good, you're, you're bound to find something new. Um, like so, so Ethan. Like, what do you, what do you think of this? Like, where where does this fit into your idea of of uh, uh, space as it relates to like modernism? So we have like, you know, uh, w- we we clearly have light right in this section of the canvas, but yeah, the yeah. way that that's done is all you get is just like I don't know if you use like a palette knife or what, but you just get like a slathering of blue down here, and that is enough, you know, as a demarcation. Like a, a, a lot of what Cezanne did was just. Um, you know, let me use colors and, and contrast as, as a way to just like break up the painting, right? Between its kind of discrete parts. If this is going to be the lighting, we're going to just 
paste this on, right? And we will know for a fact this is a lighting. If you were to not have that, like a, a lot, of, especially his landscapes with like little houses or whatever, um, they seem to be like so disconnected from uh, just just more generally what you would think of as a house. Uh, but putting like a, a couple of little dots together, right? Or put, putting a couple of points of light together, it, it very much, you know, takes on that quality. Uh, one thing that I appreciate here is just the fact that um, it, it's it's kind of like frustrating because like you know um, depending on which book you look at or which reproduction you look at the, the colors could be actually very different um, and yeah. and the one and the one that I have in my book this is the first time I'm looking at it on a screen uh, in my book it's it's definitely a bit darker right so I always had the sense that with this painting you don't really truly know uh, what time of day it is except for the fact that here in this tree. Um, you know, you have like, it's just so important to have that amount of light on it, right? Like the fact that we have lighting there, it, it, it lets you know immediately that this is either, you know, a, some sort of sunset or a sunrise, right? Um, otherwise this could be kind of like a, a, a darker scene, right? And you could imagine it being a, 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 a darker scene, scene, even if you have some of the lighting break up here, but having this tree there, it's just such a clever little way, right? Of, of getting uh, the idea of time of day here. We have, um, uh, the, the green and the uh, bottom right of the lake uh, this i don't think this is a saint victoria this is um lake anesthes I, I i don't think it's in that same area but in this green uh section um you get the sense that first of all this might be you know reflection of some of the green that that's coming off of the mountain there but this could just be like hey you know Cezanne could say uh i'm not gonna show you uh the greenery and the shrubbery and the trees on that part of the lake but simply by giving you this reflection we're gonna imply it right you're gonna think of it there by implication your mind has to wander it has to start working it has to start thinking you know what exactly would that vegetation look like you know really right N not as part of a reflection but really what it would look like yeah um, I, I take what you mean i think there really is a sense with painters like suzanne not not all the time um, but you really could kind of measure measure the space in sense of feet inches that sort of thing mm -hmm. um you know what time of day it is but um generally generally i'm not looking at the paintings like that when i'm like in looking at them I'm, I'm just kind of in a disinterested kind of way i'm just kind of relishing the different various area shapes and sort of brush strokes and kind of the way that everything sort of interacts together and just kind of really just savoring it like mm -hmm. i'm um like in a way like i'm trying to let the painting work on me i think I think like I'm um, like uh, I think with like with a painter like Cezanne, like the thing the thing about like um, uh, the the sense of space and like the thing that makes him connects him to painters like Poussin and Tintoretto and Constable even the very like these painters from across history is that these were all painters trying to put kind of more in their paintings, uh, and that kind of meant more distance in a way, like a, a more and more kind of uh, space kind of receding and how this relates to Baroque painting. And if you look at any of the great sort of Baroque painters like um, all the sort of the late Venetian sort of neoclassical painters, um, high Venetian painters, they are all kind of working in this Baroque circumambient style where you have the sense of a, of a, of a, 
of a kind of almost a, a, a space that recedes deep into the distance and but a kind of an an activity which travels through the depths of the painting from the back to the front in this sort of counter movement this sort of counter swathe which travels down the painting so as that you get that in uh, in a lot of um, I mean you even get that in um like rubens in um uh, in in some in in some of the the dutch painters but generally kind of like this is something that is Cezanne is taking from those painters from baroque painting he is taking this kind of he is trying to create this sense of a, a deep space that goes back into the painting but almost echoes out beyond the space of the canvas you always get the sense of a space that moves beyond the confine the edge of the actual literal rectangle even though like the composition kind of locks in very nicely into the rectangle the rectangle those vertical sites and horizontal lengths are almost forces pressures again like i was saying architecture is in painting like it reverberates like within paintings though that rectangle those sites and those lengths they are forces which like basically um i mean a lot of painting in the way or is operating all the time in a kind of subversive grid with Cezanne, he explodes the grid. It's almost like a mosaic. You have the sense of all these different parts, lots of little differences, which he then gets working together in this, you know, unity. This, this, um, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this conglomeration, like you know, the, like a, a, an amazing Byzantine mosaic, like a, you know, any great work of art. And uh, I, I wonder, like, if you're going to share my assessment here. Um, so, uh, th you know, th this this part of the painting, this could be a house. This could be, you know, simply an extension of the mountain. But I get the feeling that like a house to me. Sorry, yeah, like, 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 yeah, 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 given the fact that also, you know, the way that it's reflected, it looks more like a house. If it is in fact a house. Um, so just a couple of observations, you know, the more kind of, I guess, trite, uh, pre predictable thing would have been if Cezanne simply would have had like, you know, a, a line here all across to demarcate, you know, land from, from the water. But instead we have a, a line here that's broken by this tree. And we have this line itself that is broken by a further line in the background, right? We have that little barn thing. But yeah. if, if you have that barn in the back and the house here and the tree here, like, just, I, like I was saying, the interplay of horizontals and verticals, yeah. how he sets up horizontals and he kind of interrupts them. Yeah. Or, or disrupts them like yeah for yeah. instance the lines on the water with like you were saying the line of the way he sets he has to like ground those little um, uh, structures like the the trees the bank on that waterfront he has he has to make that work you know just to give you a sense of where it is in space but also you know how it how it you know how we are to graduate that space visually you know we yeah. have to we have to pick it up all at once but then we want to linger on it too like what yeah. we're doing, like, like how we're doing it. Uh, do, do you do you think uh, that that barn in the back, or you know, analogously the, the house in the front? Uh, do you think that's a kind of like somewhat you know intentionally illogical like break of 
perspective because it strikes me as like this bar needs he, to be he will much want it larger to be that way he yeah will want, he always approached that again that's the thing he's conventional but like rilke points out he always approaches his subjects through very you know you wouldn't tell so you know you would you would tell someone you know and it's why i always try to bring things back to work making it all happens in the making if you start your painting from the center if you start in the center or if you start your painting with your subject's eyes that's where most of the attention is going to be. You know, everything else will kind of like branch out, you know, mm. like Cezanne worked everywhere at once. He was working at like, he had, he, he had to work almost like, but again, it wasn't this quick thing. He, it was very, you know, very like, very, very difficult, very excruciating even. Like he, he has to kind of like wrestle with it. He has to find a way to, what's, what's the word in biology? Trans, transduce. You know, it's to find a way to turn this kind of very fleeting thing, like I'm a, you know, like what you can see, the perspective, the de the density of the air, the light, all this other stuff, and turn mm -hmm. that into pigment. I mean, and like, and then in a way, there's this other fucking weird thing where just the brush strokes themselves, when they're done right, take on this this emotion. Now, why is it that a blue done this way or a yellow done that way feels like it has pathos or it feels like it has emotion in it. It just does. It just does, but only when it's done right. You know, and that's, you look at Cezanne's brush strokes and it is incredible. Like it's like his touch and the color he has, almost this, like Rilke and Heron both struggle to describe it. But it's almost like you get the sense of another color sweating through it. Almost kind of this, um, uh, this kind of like, like almost like the, the, the nacreous sort of glint you get on a, a golden coin, you know, this mm. sort of glimmer. And like he gets, he just gets that, but everywhere, this difference of touch, these different scribbled shaded zones where he builds it up or he stains it or he takes mm. a bit off and he, or he corrects a bit or he changes a bit. Everywhere he's adjusting things. That's why he's on the move everywhere, which is why your eye is on the move because he's on the move. It's this picture which is built out of all these squinting glances that he then has to bring together. He has to somehow, he has to make all these different things can come together and operate in harmony. And like, and that, like, and it, like for us again, it has to work all at once. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah. Um, Joe, you have to carry the next two hours now. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm ready to step in. Um, yeah. I mean, do, do you have like okay. stuff for your own screen share? Um, I mean, we, we, between us, we have too much to go through, so we're not going to go get through most of this stuff, but. And could you um, bring up a painting by um, uh, Tintoretto, uh, Suzanne and Susanna and the elders. Yeah. Um, Ethan had mentioned that one prior. Yeah, I will, I will of, say yeah. as, as well. Um, let's look at at least one figurative painting from Cezanne as well. Cause I, th I think his landscapes, you know, everything that Ethan is mentioning and, and Alex, some of the way you're breaking it down, which is, is probably fairly similar to, to maybe how I've always looked at Cezanne's landscapes and, yeah. and like that, the, the piecemeal nature, but the interlocking nature of everything. And, and I think his color is, is excellent and it's brilliant. Um, and I think it's interesting to note too, that, you know, he was, um, like th this particular landscape at Lake Ancy, um, he he described that area as almost too grandiose. He almost didn't want to paint it because he preferred, uh, you know, almost more like quotidian, smaller slices of life that he could then, um, I guess, like 
with, with looking at Cezanne's stuff, I've always felt a little bit like he's trying to get at what's behind nature, the thing behind the thing, and and to kind of eviscerate it and then put it all back together in his own way. And it kind of worked well for him to do these smaller, less grand landscapes because then his ideas could work, uh, or he felt you know they could work a bit better almost than if he had a a more grand subject matter. And even like Mont Saint Victoire, it's um, at least the way he paints it, it's not a particularly grand mountain uh, in a way. You know, it's it's not like the Matterhorn or something. It's just... Uh, I fucking like, love that one. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah this is a be it's beautiful painting. And you like, know what? And it's, it's like what we were saying earlier with kind of like a more, like when Alex was, was talking again about like, kind of like the, the subject matter and all this other... I want to talk more about this, the subjects and kind of like all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. When I look at these paintings, sometimes when I first look at them, they look like abstract paintings. Right. They're like beautiful right. abstract. And then kind of almost my brain has to catch up and go, oh, it's a mountain, like all this mm -hmm. other stuff. And it, it, and it's not just because of some kind of lazy, like distortion. I think like distortion is always a kind of a shorthand for kind of like a lot of, ugh, anyway. But the, the, I, I see them as ha being very abstract. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of abstract. I mean, that's what I think is about characteristic of great painting. Again, kind of like there's all these, I don't want to call them ambiguities because in a way I, I feel like I don't want to call sort of some, some sort of I don't want to make a virtue out of being enigmatic or something like that but like, I think th there's a whole way when like great painting goes up to the edge of something and really again in that Rilkean way kind of like is reckless in the way it pushes a certain kind of it risks a certain kind of bad taste it risks a certain kind of you know like even with that Chardin painting, like you were saying, the drawing of the figures is excellent. But if it were off by just a little bit, they really would be literally grotesque. They would be kind of like, in a way, they would be a bit like the two painting. They would be, feel like not a real person, but a kind of a bloodless phantom, a kind of a, something from like some sort of weird painterly um, uh, postmodernist nightmare of kind of like you know this an impressionist. Uh, sorry, but. I really, I really like, I'm just, I love like getting lost in this level of painting where it is just kind of like this, this, um, um, this touch, this kind of, this rhythm, this rhythmic feeling, this continuity of a certain kind of, Cezanne called it, Cezanne called it, um, my, my, my little sensation, my, 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 my little something, mm -hmm. like I'm a, that's, that's, that's what, that's what Cezanne to me. Think about how necessary this... Oh, sorry, Joel. Well, I was just going to say, here's a question that, that I have too, though. And if we just talked about looking at Tim Toretto and, and happy yeah. to do that. But um, a couple other painters that have always been a bit parallel to Cezanne for me are um, Monet and Van Gogh. And so it's, you know, if, if we want to look at some of their stuff too, because I'll say yeah. this, I I don't know. And again, you know, not, not being a... a you know, a big expert on painting necessarily, but I don't know that I get any more out of Cezanne than I do out of those two painters. And so I'd be interested to hear, you know, maybe both of your take on on those two artists as well. And well, 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 put them up on your wall. Put them up on your, this, this is this is something everyone can do. Anyone can do it. And it, and it is fascinating. And it's endlessly, it's an endless indulgence just like to put prints or whatever up in your wall. That's, this is the thing about the paintings. You're a great painting. We can't own it. We can, we get to see it like if we can, but yeah. like, like make, we make do with the reproductions, but you'll, you'll see 
you know, there's, there, I don't want to sort of downplay the, the qualities in, in Monet. Monet is a very good um, uh, impressionist painter. And there's a lot that painters working today could probably learn from Monet. Mm-hmm. But I, I still think that Cezanne kind of, next to Cezanne, they kind of fall. Cezanne is not a painter who anyone kind of, like really kind of comes out looking, looking, uh, looking, it, he doesn't flatter anyone in comparison, in proximity. It, um, uh, like, like I said, like I consider him one of the greatest artists who ever lived of any medium. So, so he's like, but um, yeah. like, what, uh, what is his relevance today? And like, what kind of, what, if, you know, if, if, if it is that people don't, um, if, if people don't, if, if, if paintings aren't, <laughs> if paintings still can't get over Cezanne, what does that mean? And kind of like, what is, what is kind of the way people are going wrong? Or kind of what are the, mm. the, the kind of, what, what kind of is painting being made to do that perhaps isn't what painting wants to do or kind of isn't natal to paint? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I get your point there. And at the same time, so I'll say like, although I don't have all of them on my wall, I've, I've seen all three of these artists in very close proximity to each other multiple times at the Art Institute of Chicago when I used to live there. And, you know, I loved all of their work and would spend an, an awful lot of time in that section of the museum. And I, I think, like, I don't know that at the end of it all, I would come out and say, oh, for sure, for me, one of them is Titanic compared to the others. Um, you know, I, in fact, maybe I got and still do get a bit more out of Van Gogh than I do out of Cezanne in a number of ways. But, um, but but I've always felt like those three were were sort of uh, I don't know in some kind of harmony with one another for me they they offer different things Monet but yeah like different yeah, takes the same yeah. thing That's Monet himself I, I think acknowledged the superiority of Cezanne later in his life a lot of the impressionists um, looked down their nose at Cezanne um, and it was easy to if if you had known Cezanne you probably would have disliked him I probably would have disliked him he seems like a totally beastly kind of character. Um, yeah. I feel sympathy for him in his life story and everything like that. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, he was somebody people kind of like dismissed. Later in life, Monet basically held a party for Cezanne, invited Cezanne around all the impressionists, basically surprised him with this party. Cezanne comes in and he's he's upset. He's kind of distraught. Um, again, that kind of Rilkean thing. He kind of, he he would mistrust people who praised his art. He would mistrust people who like, did, um, who dismissed his art. Like, so when, when they held this party for him, he said kind of like, you're all making fun of me. You're all taking the piss out of me. And like, all of you, all my life, you've all mocked me behind my back. All of you. And secretly you've been stealing from me. All of, even Gauguin, he's stolen from me more than anyone else. I had one thing. I had one thing. And like, he was a he was just a deeply insecure kind of person, and uh, and like so like he was a curmudgeon, he was a hermit, he was a humbug, and I think, I think, you know, like do, do, like, do, do you think that insecurity gave way to something else? Because like um, what I read about his biography, like he seems to have like several uh, times in his life where, for example, when he became forty, he was like. You know, uh, I, I'm just going to work hard and not be this layabout. But by the time he hit 30, he, he, you know, he, he kind of got over, it seemed, a lot of the insecurities. And then he was just like, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing this work. And uh, But it's still kind of like was, mar- married to paranoia. With, uh, Pizarro, basically. Uh-huh. Um, um, 
Pizarro and like uh, who is a great painter. I think uh, like my like in my estimation, Pizarro is probably one of the better impressionists. I I, I value him uh, before uh, Monet personally, but it, it was this thing where basically you know like could Cezanne's anxiety. Cezanne's anxiety, I'm sure, did, did, did contribute somewhat to kind of like his method or way of working or mm -hmm. his outlook on life. But also, it was Pizarro who introduced this notion to Cezanne that art can be the thing, the thing, the rule that corrects emotion. You know, it doesn't need to be this thing that's just literally expressionistic the way it, mm -hmm. I feel it often is literally expressionistic in the case of Van Gogh. Um, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I I I like him much more as a draftsman than as a painter. Like, um, uh, even though, like, again, I don't want to downplay the good aspects of Van Gogh. I just think he's overpraised because of his life story. But with with um, uh, with with both Pizarro and Cezanne, there is this sense that kind of you know, nature or what you observe can be a thing, can be can be a cool thing, a cool thing. Like, think Chardin, think. Think, uh, think Corbet, like let nature ground you. That's what was great about Renaissance art. That was what was great about figurative art of the past. It was about figurative art when it allowed you to get more in the painting. The Renaissance artists used uh, real spaces, real imagery or whatever as a way to get, you know, more emotion, more detail, more more different inventive things in the art. Nowadays, figurative art is often lazy and shorthand. But like with, with Cezanne, he's taught by Pizarro, let kind of like, don't rack your fucking brains trying to be, um, um, you know, trying to be a painter. Let the art be the art. Let follow what the art tells you. You know, let the art do what it wants. Let colour do what it wants. Observe, 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 look, look, look. It, which is not the same as the kind of photographic eye of Monet, I think. Monet, in a way, like, um, because in a way, the whole idea of Monet, Monet makes repetition a kind of commentary within his work. The fact that he will constantly return to the same angle, the same space, reproduce the same thing, just at different, um, uh, almost, um, you know, these, these pixelated snapshots of the ambient light effects at that moment of the day. But you're supposed to see all the works within the context of this sequence, the, within like, almost like Warhol. If you see one Coke can, you miss the joke, which is that, you know, you need a million Coke cans on the fucking wall to, to get it. Like, Monet, it's the same. But with, um, with uh, Cezanne and Pizarro, it's, it's much more about this kind of, I don't want to say naturalism. I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, um, you know, kind of like, like some sort of fucking Walden Thoreau kind of, ah, oh, I am one with nature. I'm sure Cezanne despised nature as well. You know, kind of like, he wasn't Bob Ross sitting there painting happy little clouds. Like, oh, I fucking love the weather today. Oh, this happy little tree. Oh, how charming the bridge. Oh, my lovely, beautiful wife. Oh, I want everyone to feel that, you know, in a way, I feel like there was probably, there's probably a lot of, a lot of difficult, emotions to retrieve from these simple humble slightly generic objects subjects that you see in these works but the subject is always the first thing to fall away this is the crucial thing that heron points out in his discourse on painting overall the subject 
the apples, the mountains, the clouds, the river, the bathers, is the first thing you apprehend, the first thing one is aware of, but it is the last thing one wants to linger on, no matter what one does. One can make no, one can make, again, remember the whole thing about one's eye wanting to move all the time. One's eye is always on the move because, you know, the brain's always on the move. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter where you're at. Again, it's mechanical half a bit. But boom, 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 kind of like, like a lot of us see, but don't see. Or see, you know, and like, or, uh, and forget or, or, or reject or whatever. Kind of like, there, there are different, you know, and when you, come, when you come to a painting, when you come to a Cezanne, what do you come back to? What is it exactly that you observe upon these successive reviewings of the painting? What is it? You're not just sat there going, this is an apple, this is an apple, this is an apple, this is an apple. You can sit there and perhaps theorize, oh, look, that girl is in an oversized jacket. Did her dead father give it to her? Perhaps, perhaps I'm a, this is the native costume of her tribe. Where does she live? The Alps. Again, again it meets only to a, just a kind of cul-de-sac of kind of like, hazy sort of like like a again this is me maybe being a bit biased towards a certain kind of literary kind of thing which i think is kind of maybe um maybe a bit kind of again like i i don't i don't see it as coherent within the painting but like with Cezanne when one goes looking on looking at the painting you're not you're not just kind of you're looking at this level of the abstract things that are happening on this on the level of kind of what's happening within the depths of the surface but on the surface and how those two are working together and that ultimately kind of like really doesn't require the subject at the end of the day or doesn't your one doesn't require it moving on like like this is this is the kind of like um, uh, the a thing that kind of like it took me a long time to realize with my kind of prior prejudices about a certain kind of inflated emptied out um idea of abstraction modernist abstraction a kind of autographic style that you know once or reached a certain kind of cultural uh prominence in america in the 1940s and 50s but again like it's all a question of kind of what's possible for painting rather than like a kind of art that simply reaffirms what we already know or expect from art what we're already willing to expect or accept when we look, like like um, uh, and how we can keep looking. I, I wonder if that could be a little bit overstated, though. Um, yeah, I, I often think of like the example of Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, like when, when I was growing up, to me, like when I was a teenager, like Vladimir Nabokov was a kind of hero because. Uh, he sometimes said explicitly, but it was also kind of implicit in his work, like. Um, just like with Cezanne, like you could have like, you know, for example, like the subject is the first thing that might fall away. Uh, he sort of said that he wanted to do that in his own writing, right? Um, uh, he, he said that instead of looking at, you know, the meeting, right, instead of uh, uh, trying to uh, interpret really what's going on, you should instead focus on how, you know, little kind of clever details sort of cohere. And I was really into that for a while. And even like when I was sort of doing like experimental writing as a kid, uh, I, I, I would tell myself, okay, how can I like sort of 
you know, create a paragraph of beautiful imagery that is still somehow disconnected from any real subject. And ultimately, this sort of like led me to a, a ton of uh, dead ends. Um, and, and I realized, realized like you could sort of do both, right? You could have this, this idea that the subject is supposed to kind of fall away in the sense that, you know, in a book like the plot is just, you know, the vehicle for the deeper things that are going on. But um, it, it, in some ways, like having a subject, right, and having it look a certain way, that is by itself, when you think about it, it's, it's also kind of technique, right? It's also kind of like the how, because um, it's a lot harder to write a book that has, you know, not only great imagery, you know, like a uh, uh, great philosophy, but also, you know, just has, you know, just a, a very uh, rich things that are happening, right? It's, it's much easier to have like a disconnected paragraph of sort of good writing. Like you were talking about Jessica Schneider's. Again, here, here, you're make, here you're making the rules of visual art subservient to a certain kind of bad literature. Which I feel is again a film. Not necessarily. I, I'm just trying to see, like, you know, to, to what degree can we have these kinds of connections and when are they relevant? And you are, you know, you I, I think right they become less say, relevant in visual right art. In the best, you are right to say, and I agree, that in the best figurative art, what's the, the subject, so to speak, is like, is the framework. It's, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the model that tracks and which everything. Like it's it it's basically what allows these artists mm -hmm. to get away with what they get away with, that they have this subject there to ground them. I mean, it might be that you as a Renaissance painter, um, um, like let's say that you are um, uh, Raphael and somebody comes up to you and they say, we want a nativity scene. Already mm -hmm. there is a whole, um, there is a whole contingent um, sort of literary, uh, like um, um, uh, literary, iconography um that is kind of there for you that you have to work within but within those formal constraints you have all sorts of freedoms so you can you for instance you might have to paint christ with a red cloak but that can mean all kinds of things that can mean like mm -hmm. and like so you have all kinds of and we see what that means for different people within the renaissance we see um uh, you know in a in a kind of indelicate general way i would could say that you know the response of Venice was color. The response of Florence was drawing in symmetry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but at the same time, um, at the same time, it is a mistake, I, I think, to kind of in a way believe that kind of these artists kind of felt like because there was the figurative art, because there was a figure of the subject there, that this is kind of, that this is the only way into the work or that the artists themselves who made these artworks have some kind of profound attachment to that it's more sincere for being figurative artwork basically mm. that kind of the art artists felt all kinds of sublime deep feelings just because it's figurative art just because it's iconography just because it's allegory just because it's um a, a crotophony just because it's symbology just because it's you know like these things are fine and the um, great painting can have all these things, but just because it has all these things doesn't mean it's great painting. Yeah, um, so I mean, like, yeah, it has so to like, be that case, yeah. Yeah, and be, but all these things were available to artists of the Renaissance in a way which is much more immediate, immediate and much more real and present and much more feasible, viable, than artists who would be working in that style today. And like, you do see artists, I mean, again, this is not to kind of say, I'm not trying to sort of say kind of like, 
contemporary modernist abstraction you see in Freeze or um, uh, Kyman Reed, like that's the answer. That's the art I'm Trump. I I'm saying thumbs up to, thumbs down to painters like she um, uh, too. Uh, um, there is all sorts of bad generic kitsch art. There's all kinds of chic art. There's the kind of the bourgeois chic art. There's the kind of like more kitsch art. There's, I mean, Thomas Kincaid and uh, two are both kind of bad painters. I mean, like, but and there are also very different kinds of good painters. Like, I am like maybe kind of my taste is, is like a bit inscrutable, but like, I'm I'm trying to like point out how a criterion might be formed of how you can make these sort of general general kind of uh, asser assertions about where the qualities of these painters lie. You might disagree with me. Hell, you're fucking welcome to. I can't fucking categorically prove any of what I'm fucking saying. So like that's, I can only be objective up to the limits of what my language allows me to like be. So like, but, but like ultimately like, when I look when I look at certain sort of painters, I see some sort of painters as being more credible. Like I think, kind of f a figurative art from the past. Like actually, like the the way to kind of like keep up the painting that's great on that level, like is in a way is to kind of again kind of figure out what it means for now or what all this other stuff. What painters in the past mean for now? I mean, like actually, a good a good thing to sort of get us forward in this conversation because we mentioned in passing uh, Dan Schneider and kind of like his interview with two. And kind of like his various comments and sort of painters and stuff and kind of like i'm like I, I kind of like i kind of have a lot of mixed feelings about like uh, the way that sort of painting gets talked about in schneider's work and like in dan's work and you mean his novels or like what essays or what do you mean like what in his in his in his um oeuvre overall i guess kind of his okay. essays too dan dan kind of has a lot of different kind of thoughts about painters and paintings like um uh, some of which i agree with like um, uh, I think he's very interesting when he talks about Andrew Wyeth and um, uh, Ed, Ed, Edward Hopper, <clears throat> mm -hmm. but when he talks about say Vermeer or um, uh, about um, um, about uh, the Hudson River School painters, like he just loses me. But overall, like overall, kind of I think there's something interesting in Dan's um, uh, talk uh, in Dan's um, uh, various various writings. For in his fiction and in his essays as it pertains to kind of Andrew Wyeth and like when he talks about the painting um, uh, of the girl who is kind of um, convalescing kind of in the field and kind of the house is on the horizon I think you know the one I mean mm -hmm. um, um, his world. Yeah. he talks about how the way you can go from the micro to the macro this is in, this is a, of interest to me because paintings are your paintings are always going to be viewed from one space it's true Painting has to work from a distance and close up. That's the mark of a good painting. I hold to that. But when you're close up, you need it needs there needs to be something there. Your eye needs to be rewarded by that investigation. What do you get? You get you know the whole kind of the, you get the detail of the grass, the the hay, you know. And Dan says like often kind of like this is a point that he uses a mic uh, uh, to sort of illustrate his kind of larger kind of I suppose. Uh, his uh theory on painting which is that kind of basically this is a bit like um a jackson pollock painting where how you can go into like a jackson pollock painting and it's almost like this lattice work of you know seething little like marks like here and there well that's what you get when you look really close at any painting right mm -hmm. so kind of people are fucking stupid 
to talk about um, paintings which are just abstractions corner to corner because you know you need something from a distance you need some image upon which all this hangs and again like one only only accepts part of this argument once again one sees the fact that there needs to be a structure on which everything hangs there needs to be some kind of structure some kind of some kind of form right but again i don't accept that it needs to be this kind of fucking like picture book like story thing like i don't accept that like i mean i like wyeth actually i think kind of i don't think wyeth is like i think wyeth does deserve more praise and so does hopper um uh, but um but i i think like it relates interestingly to what patrick heron says when he talks about matisse and he talks about the painting uh, la musique he talks about going into the brush strokes of the green hill and all these different scribbled overlapped uh, planes of drawing and how that is almost kind of enough <laughs> like yeah, that's a very heron-esque it's a very heron-esque claim to make kind of just just the sheer kind of fizz of, of that green and like how that matissean color i always think matissean color is like bruised he paints the painting he scrapes it off did you know this about matisse the paint the painting itself is like it's like a a, a scab it's like a conglomeration of, all, of, an, of a ton of after images. He paints the painting, he scrapes it off. And then the next morning he comes up, he paints it again on top of like the ghost of the painting stained on the canvas. Then he scrapes it off. And as he goes along, all these distortions you get in Matisse that we all notice that are all like start to kind of appear, the dovetailing of the forms, the, mm. the slightly, the slight kind of uh, uh, the tapering of the spaces. For, like, the, the, like there's always something hard won to these great painters and these great paintings. Like, and and like, there's always got to be some kind of structure there that develops and grows out. But I don't think it needs to be a, a, a figure as some people would would uh, assert. I think you know, abstract painting has a lot of problems going forward, in in the sense that there is a lot of really fucking meager abstract art. There was a lot of bad abstract art produced in the 1950s. There was a lot of bad art produced in the 1970s. And there's a lot of bad lobby abstract art produced now. No longer can people say that abstract art itself is the antidote to kitsch. You know, art, like abstract art itself, like it's younger than a figurative art is as old as painting itself. I mean, we're talking thousands of years. Abstract art has only been around as long as cinema, really. Mm -hmm. And like, and, and but in a way, that is something we're ready to say is like dead. And it's like, and we're ready to kind of generically just conflate abstraction with distortion in a way. We say this is abstracted. We usually mean abstracted from there's, you know, there's a, there's a subject, there's an entity, and we are distorting it. We're subjecting it to some kind of stress or some kind of warp or tension or some kind of disruption. Like, I'm a, I think, you know, these are all cliches in a way. These are all cliches. Like, the paint, the brushstroke itself, like, like, you know, it has, you know, in the wrong hands, again, it doesn't work all on its own. In the right hands, you know, there's all sorts of painterly fucking cliches that we have to, like, overcome about kind of the artist and what, what is more authentically kind of painterly or more, more is more authentically kind of resonant. I, I don't know. Like, it, uh, and it comes about, again, through looking, I feel. Mm -hmm. Like, and that kind of gradual, it is weird. 
the creeping sensation of like when says like the more and more Cezanne comes to occupy your mind, like some sort of like weird alien from H.P. Lovecraft. Suddenly I just wake up and I think about Cezanne paintings and I look at them and they're strange. They're strange, you know, like I, I don't know. And I think how can one like, you know, I, in a way I could have become a shit Cezanne. I started out like uh, it was my transition when I really got into modernist painting and like started to kind of shrug off my sort of illustrational habits. Like I could have just become a limp expressionist painter, like, like you know, like basically a sub Soutine or something like that, or Modigliani or something. You know, there are and those are examples of painters who try to bite Cezanne and kind of don't succeed. You know, there are so many painters who try to basically bite what Cezanne does or try to up the ante or turn it up a pitch and it kind of doesn't work they, they try but it doesn't work you know you look at bacon you know like and it's like oh you, you know like some of the works are good but like it, it's just you know yeah i i think with bacon there's a there's a uh um, uh, just off the top of my head, there's there's a few that are good, but it, it does get kind of uh, repetitive, right? Um, it's one of those things where it's much better to, you know, view him kind of like in a selected works, right? As opposed to like an entire, you know, comp comprehensive overview. Um, but I, I wrote down that observation, right? Good yeah. uh, art has to be good close up and also at a distance. So uh, I don't know if you're ever going to write down your very theories true. on art, very but true. but but if you don't if you don't theorize about art, I'm going to write down your theories for that's, you. That's pictorial theory 101. You know, kind of one doesn't want to reduce the art to an object, but at the end of the day, you know, like the art what i don't want to get into a thing like in a duchampian way to say that the art is completed by the viewer or everything else again one wants to like say that kind of the art is robust enough to kind of have its own you know tendencies or its own kind of you know like uh but but um at the end of the day like i i see these as as like you know cultural uh like um, um artifacts you know the, the, the like paintings you know Again, like the whole idea of a fucking painting is to be on a wall. The square relates to a wall. Maybe we've forgotten that with our screens and the way that we can rep mechanically reproduce everything digitally now. Bam, bam. Like we, we, can't, we don't even really think about these things as material objects anymore, especially like drawing and illustration, which is so easily flattered by photography and reproduction. Mm. What about the actual fact of the painting and where you, where you put it? A lot of paintings that are bought nowadays for these record sums go into fucking vaults. You know, it's like, like, uh, I advocate in a way personally in my practice for a kind of art that both in, can embrace the gallery space. I mean, like, although in sort of a post COVID kind of art um, world, one, one wonders about the feasibility of the gallery, but above everything else also um, accepts the domestic space and domestic architecture, like, uh, like, like the, actual i mean how many of us can afford actual art to hang in our homes we have to make do with prints and like prints are nice but like it's tacky it's tacky to hang prints of great paintings in our houses no it is a kitsch thing to do we're made slaves to these reproductions where we have to hang up hang up these in these subordinate um uh, unflattering pictures of these masterpieces and we can sit and imagine how great they are how you could, you, you, you could like, just do the, you could, you just do the Mr. Art. Bean thing, though.
We deserve art for our homes, affordable art. I mean, hell, if we can even afford to buy the books where they were reproduced in photo form, fucking hell, they're expensive nowadays. Tashin, fucking like, fucking hell. Like, it's a fucking daylight robbery. But, you know, and let alone to then make it. And that's the whole problem nowadays when we, again, we talk about kind of the stresses and the kind of the perils of kind of contemporary art working today. Kind of the problem of a kind of, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, an incredibly corporate kind of art world, an art world which is like basically run managerially by a managerial class, by an, by a class of kind of advertisers and kind of um, uh, bureaucrats and uh, PR people. It's um, um, you know, you have to either accept that or you become basically a nineteenth-century figure. You become someone working in your fucking house. Yeah. Working another job? Working another job? You're not serious, man. You're not an artist. Are you professional? Who are you? Well, Cezanne wasn't professional. In a way, yeah. Cezanne did try. You know, he was too rich. He went to Paris. All the other bohemians, they really were living off bread and wine. Cezanne, you know, his father was a merchant. He was like, he came down to Paris. He, were, he had to basically kind of play up his, uh, his country hick provincial you know countryside lad character he put on a kind of uh, uh, a fake accent and sort of would scratch himself with fleas it was a horribly self-conscious neurotic person he wanted to escape his family come down to paris be be with other artists he felt even more alienated even more out of place Oh, he was a horribly right-wing guy and a Catholic as well. Let's not forget that. Couldn't stand any left-wing talk. Anyone tried to talk clever around him, he would swear and say, oh, which shit's on me. Fuck you. Yeah. He, like, he wouldn't let himself be alone with women. I believe like his novel, The Gift, was okay. I mean, I remember it being basically a moral novel, which, yeah. you know, but, uh, but you know, he's not someone I find myself thinking about often at all. Mm -hmm. To be honest, but you know, as far as youth goes, like he's he's a great one to be attracted to when you're young, right? Because there's so many bad models to have. He's someone that you should be attracted to, and then find a way to get past, right? That's that's a. It feels like that sets you up for some kind of success. Do you feel like Bukowski? Do you feel like Bukowski is a writer of a similar stripe? I think Bukowski is far inferior. I mean, um, like literally, like there's not there's nothing. Like I, I've read like. I've never read a whole novel of his, for example, but I've read significant portions and, and there's like really nothing that I ever remember. Well, let um, me ask you, Alex, let me ask you, like, uh, who, who are, when you think bad painting, like, cause I, I've talked plenty about what I think bad painting is kind of um, uh, like, what do you think bad painting is when like someone says bad painting? Who's your, who's your idea of a bad painter? Um, this may be not exactly fair. Cause uh, maybe he's not a bad painter, but like, when I think of like Mugliani, like what is the point of like the long necks, you know, and, and like shit like that. Like um, there's a lot of people yeah. that do weird shit for its own sake. Um, yeah. Also, the, the more kind of extreme Abak stuff, Pollock and others, it's like uh, I, I understand there's a form there, but it's so like when I was say, saying earlier about um, just the fact that like you could imagine, you know, a set of like prose, right? Pa paragraphs and paragraphs of like 
beautiful writing about you know a mountain but it doesn't actually really say anything um th that in and of itself is a kind of substantial flaw even if the writing is not uh easy to just like out and out dismiss right so um i, I think abex tends towards that and you know in, in ways that are even more extreme so you know but perhaps perhaps there's like stuff there that i haven't really you know there might be uh, aspects that I've not fully considered, right? Uh, I think one of the most exciting things in life is just the fact that, you know, with any kind of branch of knowledge, there's always like something to learn. And I hate the idea of ever being anywhere where it's like, okay, I've learned everything I need to learn. And now there's nothing more like that's, that's very depressing to me. Um, the problem of the problem of um, ABEX is a very modern problem of, I believe, um, press and promotion. Some of the artists were overexposed too early and to their detriment and yeah. to the yeah. disadvantage of other um you know um, later painters abstract painters you know um a lot because decade to decade especially in the art world it's probably even more concentrated with certain generations of artists trying to distance themselves or disown the values of the preceding generation mm -hmm. like uh, to which is sensible in a way to, to take a revolutionary stance against certain things so that they don't become like what we were talking about, a kind of um, um, something that's just from a repertoire, something that's deployed just illustrationally, unthinkingly, just as part of a scheme, as part of an overall cosmetic arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the pressure to disown Greenbergian formalism which was seen as like, which was this huge promotional force for American abstract painting in the 1950s and 60s. And consequently- you mean his essays, his essays were? His essays, but also his presence, his actual presence, his, uh, him appearing in places and talking to people. Like he was touring the world constantly, other nations, visiting schools, visiting artists and talking to them about abstract art. And, all the time actually promoting American paintings, saying mm -hmm. this is good stuff. Going forward though, you need to look at what's happening in America because those guys are on the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And this is something that a lot of people were, you know, American painting really did create a profound kind of like upheaval in a lot of places, especially like England. Um, but at the same time, people later grew to, re to reject or resent the way in which Greenberg was holding up America all the time as this sort of thing to which everything else had to be adequate. Mm -hmm. to, to like, uh, but, but like, um, um I, we were saying, uh, what, 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 what was I saying? I didn't, I don't want to get lost, but, um, um, Greenberg and his ideas about, um, um, uh, about, um, American painting were that kind of American painting was kind of, was was doing the most for painting that it was the the painting painting itself that was um uh being foregrounded the most and that these painters were upping the stakes of painting which is a very greenbergian term it's upping the stakes of painting and it's taking more kind of risks and in his typical greenbergian way he said they were more flat flat like um uh again that's the biggest problem with greenberg what does that mean like um uh okay it's flat but like um uh, there's flat and there's flat you know, any more or less flat than a Byzantine mosaic or any more or less flat than a cardboard cutout, you know, kind of like, what is there some sort of optimum flatness to which everything is um, uh, proceeding towards? Or, you know, like, 
that's just the thing. It becomes some sort of ideal in of itself that doesn't actually really stand in for much. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like I was saying, I'm interested in the plas- in, in precisely in plastic space in painting. In the well, way you that- say plastic space, like in like it, compared to what? Like what is non-plastic space? Non-plastic space. Yeah, because I hear this phrase, but I've never really seen like a good definition. Plastic space is um, uh, actual space. It's three-dimensional articulated space. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I believe longitude, latitude, or something like a uh, uh, height, depth, uh, depth, width, uh, like all this sort of stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's basically sculptural space, okay. if you will. It is the space of positive and negative space of plastic space which is to say of a of um a firm plastic positives um uh, object or entity as compared to ambient space which is receptive passive on the move mm-hmm. um, um this is this is the syntax of sculpture in a way but um space and articulation and dimensionality are key to architecture and they're key to painting too pictorialism too the way in which certain paintings are set up as spaces to then set up sculptures freezes in a way these you know tableaus of um, uh, things frozen in static movement but hold that movement within their sculptural pose which tracks the movement freezes the movement um, exaggerates or makes a drama of the movement, which is you get what you get with Renaissance sculpture, like you get with Donatello, who I believe is one of the better sculptors, and Degas, one of the best modernist sculptors. Um, uh, but in in a painting, like the actual kind of spe- there is there's got to be even when you're dealing with abstract paint and stuff like that. Again, I mentioned earlier that certain things kind of arise out of pain with very little persuasion kind of certain and again we were talking about visual laws not only do you have to work within visual laws visual laws militate against one as you work with the medium certain things tr- come to the surface by their own not to sort of anthropomorphize it uh, the tendency of the material is to give way to certain illusionistic effects which kind of are, are again preceded by our experience and by kind of the rules of kind of that substrate and what the light is doing. So if you just move color about a canvas, you get the sense of a space there. Mm -hmm. Certain colors advance, certain colors recede, not by their own will, but with what they, how they're placed. Put a certain red next to a certain blue, they will chime. They will suddenly some sort of relationship comes about between them. And specifically between those exact deposits, those exact measures of colour and how they are deployed on that surface. Matisse used to say a square foot of red is more red than a square centimetre of red. So again, area is having something a lot to do with how what that colour and the light is doing. But when those things are brought together in that interaction, kind of, uh, again, like, it has to create some sort of chime, some sort of harmony kind of within the painting itself. Mm-hmm. That like, um, uh, like, like we're saying is akin to music. One, one painter that could be interesting for us to talk about is uh, Salvador Dali. Uh, and I, I would just be interested to get Ethan's thoughts on Dali because Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like he's one you and I have mentioned either in artifacts before or just talking to each other before and uh, consider great and respect. I, I know Dali is also a, uh, 
you know, rated highly by the likes of, of Dan Schneider, I think mm-hmm. Jessica too. And so I, he feels to me like maybe someone that, uh, that covers multiple bits of ground here because for, for us uh, literary types, I think he's very satisfying in a way mm-hmm. with yeah. the, the the obvious visual metaphors and the, and then the non-obvious things that he'll implement uh, into his bingo into his canvases. But uh, but 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 a good a very good painter just in general as well in terms of like as, as far yeah. as I've ever perceived his painterly ability and style, his drawing is is seems to me excellent. So uh, any thoughts there? Do, do, and Alex, do, do, of course, do you have any, like any paintings? Because uh, I didn't prepare prepare any from him but if you have anything like maybe we could talk um, about that uh let me i'll hold on i'll pull one up Generally, you guys, when i think of classic Dali, i think of something like cannibalism of autumn or something like that yeah i'll pull that up hold on one second that's a typical Dali. you're right on the money joe when you say that Dali is all about metaphor and you know Dali is a surrealist whatever that means but surrealism in sort of uh, 20th century, like sort of like uh, early modernism, like uh, it, well, sort of early modernism as it is, sort of pertains to like poetry and painting. Surrealism is a response to cubism. Everything's a response to cubism in a way. That's the earthquake, the seismic event that cubism is. What's the response to cubism? Uh, hedonism, orphism, uh, uh, um, theosophy. Um, uh, is it is it um, uh, a new kind of cubism? Futurism, all this other stuff surrealism is another response to cubism and surrealism picks up upon the dialectical elements within synthetic cubism the metaphor the illusion the conflation of different forms and the puns based upon certain illusions those come to the forefront with Dali. but the difference is he doesn't paint them in a modernist style he paints them in a sort of a strange almost slightly lurid um neoclassical academic style i would say actually quite a commercial style you know, it's a distorted style. And that's another thing that's interesting about Dali, how he almost takes this sort of quite um, sickly kind of neoclassical um, uh, painting. And he kind of introduces a sort of uh, a limp, hilarious. That's the key thing. It is slightly hilarious, you know, kind of this floppy, right. floppy quality to everything. Like almost like, um, uh, you know, everything's like made of rubber. Like it's it's almost like, you know, it's distortion, right? But it's not the distortion we get in a Van Gogh, where, you know, right. it's all strokes. Here, the distortion is literalized. In a way, that is a, a mm-hmm. sort of the, the part of the whole, like, the literary conceit here, in a way, kind of like, here, it's almost a mis- it's almost like a misinterpreted cubist painting, in a way. And in a way, that is kind of a, a big surrealist response to cubism that picasso later integrates into his own practice and he starts painting monster women you know like and picabia starts painting monster women de kooning starts painting monster women like um the way that people initially receive cubism and kind of all this stuff uh is almost like oh it's some sort of like hideous grotesque thing you know it's this mangled distorted thing it's like i'm a this is the way kind of a, a madman looks at reality and that's how newspapers mocked cubism and stuff uh, drunkards night out like I'm a oh I've had too much wine now I now I'm a cubist you know like, like like that was the like the lowest common denominator way of getting into this shit so look at it this way Dali is almost taking a kitsch position deliberately he's almost saying yeah or like I'm a what if we take all the sort of the ambiguity of cubism and we turn it into a kind of game of association 
yep. you know, where, where everything really does become three other things rolled into one, but a kind of mutant version of it. You know, like, so like, and I mean, you, can you can imagine that done very badly though. Cause uh, yeah, he you know, could have been and, and so he easily. Did do it very badly. Yeah. He did. Yeah. There are many terrible Dalis like Dali at best. I think is only a minor painter. Like, but I think, I think in a way he's closer to Warhol and that his greatest contributions to art today were in his public life and his public persona and kind of the way he quite inventively promoted himself through the media. Like, so take from that what you will. But his paintings, you know, they are witty and they are kind of odd. What, what I don't like, though, is when later in life they become these quite horrible, like, you know, they, you start to see all these, like, awful metaphors for, like, quantum physics, but rolled up with Catholicism and, like, oh, they're just ghastly. And you can tell he's just trying to synthesize Einstein and theology. And they're like, it's just like theosophy. It's just like Crowleyan, like, like mysticism and i just like i just find it utterly kitsch like you know where it's like a christ on a on a hypercube you know like oh give me a fucking break you know like, like but this this stuff is kind of slightly more genuinely um mad you know this this, this a painting like this is quite actually um perverse and limp and um, uh, disturbing but in a kind of exciting way that kind of like you you yeah you you kind of see coming through a certain vein of painting from I, I suppose spanish well he is a spanish painter isn't he so like goya and stuff like right. that the, the predominance of um uh, these calignous black um uh sort of receding modeled patches of dark these you know these are bits of uh, uh charoscuro that that basically model do a lot of the modeling if you actually look there's not a lot of great color in dali like Joel mentioned earlier, tone and uh, tone is something different than color. You know, it's basically lightening up, muddying down. It's more black and white and gray than anything else. And the interesting thing about Cezanne again is the lack of gray in his paintings. He always uses gray as an excuse to add some other color. But here in uh, Dali, it's always black silhouettes that are mm -hmm. kind of doing a lot of the drawing here, a lot of the outlines. You can almost imagine them as stencils in a way that are being filled in. Like you can always imagine it, the smoothness of an airbrush which is kind of what kind of repulses me as a painter in a way, the kind of the, the alien smooth finish. But um, you are rewarded by this other thing, which almost mimics and parodies a certain kind of painterly, um, a kind of painterly syntax, which is this flow, this loose, floppy, liquidy flow of imagery, which he distorts and elongates, and as it were, horseshoes around into the corner like that to create this tabletop. You know, so it's, uh, you know, even the way in which he makes it a landscape that turns into a figure, which turns into a still life, almost feels like a joke about Cezanne. Do you not think? <laughs> Could be. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like Dali was willing to troll anything. And so uh, he probably was. I Personally, I've always found his, what you called his alien smoothness, uh, part of the appeal in a way, I feel like it, it actually... True. It, it actually pro props up some of what he's going for here, and I'm sh I'm quite sure True. he did it on purpose. I wouldn't argue against this, and in fact, Greenberg would agree. He would say that that's the thing: the fact that it looks kind of like quite cheap and neat and quite like kind of right. like you know a conventional, but it's doing something very unconventional. But yeah. for me, the difference and the key difference here is the 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 definitive thing is Cezanne is painting for the sake of painting, like like Constable, like Poussin, he is painting for the sake of painting to make you see. As, as if to prove to people, this is why we should keep mating paintings. Dali, in a way, almost takes painting for granted. 
he says, you know, forget about that other stuff. Like I'm going to, I'm going to use painting just as a way to kind of like get into this other thing, which is this kind of moving where the painting becomes a metaphor for like the compartments of my brain and the compartments of my mind and all the fun little elaborate jokes I can play about the things you'd expect to find in a painting. So here he's an ironist more than a sincerist. And I think Dali is at his worst when he is doing his sincere, religious, you know, almost like, you know, he's deliberately trying to kind of like incorporate the imagery of Raphael and all this stuff, I think, and Millet, and it becomes a bit, a bit too sentimental, a bit too, but with something like this, it is genuinely quite perverse and like extraordinary and interesting to look at. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, um, you know, uh, uh, Dali is is uh, uh, one of these uh, figures that yeah I mean there is first of all the the fact that I mean you do have to contend with you know his most well known paintings are like all over postcards right uh, yeah they, they they are this kind of brick a brack at this point um, at the same time like uh, yeah like for example the smoothness might you know uh, turn you off in terms of uh, there, there's perhaps like more technically difficult things you could do like for example uh if Cezanne wants to use his uh um a palette knife right uh to pull that off is going to be obviously a little bit harder than to just make something smooth because the brain is going to uh, accept right uh, what is smooth as like you know a default good right this is something that's pleasurable this is something that you know sort of like you know tickles you a little bit right puts you in a certain kind of state of mind uh but you know just combine that with you know, the actual vistas that you get, right? I mean, uh, the smoothness is just the part that disarms you and, you know, also makes it even more grotesque, right? Imagine if like, you know, this, th this would have been something that's a lot more trite if he decided to do like kind of, you know, Picasso-esque angulation, right? Let's, let's make this like really, you know, uh, uh, grotesque, even in terms of the, the brush strokes themselves. Uh, and instead, you know, he's like, all right, well, if, if, this is, you know, like, 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 uh, uh, supposed to be this, this response to cubi cubism. Um, let's show you that kind of, you know, maybe a little bit of that cubist aesthetic, but we're going to disarm you first. Right. And, and we're going to do it in a way where, you know, 50 years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. Um, so just, just in general, I think that's probably like maybe the framework for maybe the majority of, uh, the Lee's, um, uh, pieces. Um, I, I, I noticed that like, uh, I mean, I've seen this painting before, but I've never, like, I always assumed that this was like a, a butter knife with this kind of, um, uh, angulation, I guess, like I've seen sort of decorative knives, but no, this is actually supposed to be going into whatever the equi equivalent of flesh, you know, yeah. this thing is just like, you know, the spoon is, is, you know, you're spooning flesh as well, but the night, but the, 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 um, when we're talking about like, you know, the, this balancing act, right. As opposed to just balance, you know, we have the, the knife going inside the flesh we have the spoon going inside the flesh, but the fork does not. And if you think about it, if the, if the fork would, if the fork would go inside, it would be less clever overall. Right. You would have, you know, like just, just like something about that, um, but by not turning away from the kind of, already established pattern here, um, it, it would have like sort of disrupted at least a little bit uh, that part of the painting. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like, you know, like, I feel such, I feel such, I, I feel so amenable to Dali, but I, you know, like I, I, there was a lot of surrealists in art school when I went there. I feel like, I feel like there needs to be some sort of antidote to this surrealism. I feel like 
you know, I look at the popularity of someone like David Lynch and all this stuff. Like, in a way, like, like I said, surrealism is good. And there's all sorts of, like, delights that I find in Dali where he plays these games where, especially when we were just talking about the silhouette, he often plays these games in other paintings. There are other paintings I prefer to this. I think there's a painting he did called Bust of Voltaire. Can we find right. that painting? Yeah. But where, on. you know, you have the Bust of Voltaire, which is actually composed of uh, two women stood side by side. So it creates a, it's a, uh, an anamorphism, like something you would get in a, a Renaissance painting, actually. Mm-hmm. But this is just my point, actually. This sort of style of painting isn't new. Are you both aware of uh, uh, Giuseppe Archimboldo? The grotesque no, Renaissance portraitist. No, he was a grotesque Renaissance court portraitist who would often do these allegories, which were these heads made up of stuff, like composite images of like, so a head's composed of vegetation or animals or um, architecture. And, you know, you see this all the time in, in, in art throughout history. Uh, there is a certain kind of academic art, which is visual puns, visual metaphors, trompe wheels, certain kind of knowing um, games of um, uh, sort of, you know, little, little games of uh, visual optical trickery. So like this bust of Voltaire painting, like this is actually, you know, <laughs> this is actually something that I quite like from Dali when he starts to do stuff like this. Because there, there is something about the silhouette, which is quite abstract in of itself. The con- it's like, you know, the contour removed from the ability of describing a solid object, of removed from the responsibility of describing a solid object. So like, a, you know, positive space and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's what, that's, that's what I like on that level. But mm-hmm. again, what I resist about Darnley precisely is this kind of knowing quality, I guess. That kind of like, that, that, that element that he kind of takes for granted, where kind of like, we, everyone still, still is kind of impressed with this sort of painting. And I was just talking to you, Alex, about kind of that sort of painting that's really popular on Reddit. Like, you know, yeah, you, you yeah. got onto the Reddit page and there are these articles like, did my first oil painting? What do you guys think? And like, it's a painting of the artist painting a picture of himself, painting a picture of himself, painting a picture of himself. Like, you know, like uh, these uh, like MC Escher, Trump Wheel mm. kind of games. And people fall over themselves to praise it and go, my, how clever. It's like a dream or kind of like, and again, it, for some reason, it starts people off again going, oh, I wish I could have been an artist. I wish I could have learned how to paint all this other stuff. It just whips people up into this like frenzy. Yeah, like, it, 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 it's yeah. very manipulative. Like uh, I remember one time I was, uh, I was working with some kid and to calm him down, he liked to draw. Uh, and I would draw better than him. So I would, uh-huh. I would draw him drawing and he was like, Oh shit, you know, like, but, but this is you know, it's something that you do with a kid, right? It's not really something, um, that, uh, you, you should like, you know, proudly display on the internet or, you I, know, I see, these, put up as, in a I see these as, I see these as magician's tricks. That's what Dali is to me. He's a yeah. ghost train operator. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what his paintings are. It's a, it's like this weird, uh, Ed Wood kind of experience where it's almost like you know just this weird synthetic world of kind of like you know like it's but you know that's that's the charm of it but like you know again like it's it's not it's not something i can really think about myself or like in my practice or kind of i so i think he's an important figure for today's artists actually again make of that what you will like but the whole kind of um uh, the image that darling created of himself as this kind of and he cult- cultivated, 
courted for himself in all his press appearances, in all his interviews, in all his writings, uh, all, all the other stuff he did, his, his commercials he did. Like, that was kind of his life work, really. And all his art was really just to illustrate that as kind of like a little, you know, some sort of thing to like point at him. Like, you know, there's a very famous uh, anecdote where Dali met Sigmund Freud. And Dali was like, loved, like, loved Freud, always read Freud. And kind of instantly when he met Freud, he kind of launched into this sort of detailed description of these dreams he'd been having recently. He was like, oh, I've got to tell you about this dream I've been having recently. I see this symbol from my... And like, Freud like sits listening to it patiently. And at the end, he says, you know, I'm far more interested in the contents of your conscious mind than I am in your unconscious mind. <laughs> you like... I don't think he was trying to say Dali was a charlatan. It could be easy to say that, like the same way it could be easy to say that about Warhol. But rather, I think Freud was saying he was just interested in how um, Dali came up with all this imagery, you know, that he was deploying, you know, how he thought it all up. You know, it didn't have to arrive in some hazy visionary dream, like, um, uh, like how, like, you know, but that's just it. Often we feel there is this need to have this some sort of, some quasi i don't know what you call it like i hear a lot of people talk in a slightly hyper hyper hyperbonic kind of way about painting sometimes about the intention of the artist and what they're up to i mean again i always see dali as a kind of interesting kind of comedian figure i don't really see him as a kind of painter in the rank in the like class of someone like cezanne like um uh or even kind of like the same type as cezanne again i think i see him much closer to warhol or someone like that I, I I I have a higher view of Dali than you, but uh, I I would agree that he is. Sort I'm not of trying kind to be like flattering to him. I like him quite a lot. I I would agree though. He's a sort of like uh, he is a kind of dead end in the sense that you know there are people that have obviously tried to imitate Dali and like you know just generically like you said there's you know there's always painters going to be everywhere that are sort of surrealist because you know in, in some ways like we were talking about content uh, earlier. It is kind of easy, like if you say, like, okay, I'm going to be a painter. Okay, what am I going to paint? How am I going to get attention? Well, you could just make up some random grotesque shit, you know, put things that don't make a lot of sense together and say, well, I'm a surrealist in the vein of Dali. Who's that, uh, who's that surrealist artist that that one person keeps bringing up in the comments to some of like the video? Like, am I like, Pratip Kokabura? The, the oh, for God's yeah. sake, that, that oh, stuff oh, that is guy. nauseating me. Is that it. even surrealism? It's, That's um, well, like, I guess it is. I guess it it's is. like HR Giga put through a tie dye sort of thing. It's yeah. just like it's fucking sickly. I mean, yeah. like you, the only way you can take that kind of art seriously is as like some sort of album cover for like you know like a death metal group or something like that. Yeah, like, right. and, and even that will be fairly trite, right? As an album cover. Yeah, it's um, just like I feel. I feel the same way about Odd Nerdum. You know, kind of like he's closer to Beryl Cook and like Thomas Kincaid than he is to like like fucking uh, Rembrandt. But because he dresses himself up in the in the like the imagery of Rembrandt, Dum Dums just like bite it and go, yeah, yeah. It's like he is the real fucking. Oh my god! You should see this comment. Like, are you guys familiar with Obnerdom? I watched Obnerdum. your video on him. Yes, so I, I I took a little bit of a dive Shit. into his work. Yeah, shitting fuck. Like this per like I get these like weirdos on the comments of my videos sometimes. He's trying like speak in the defense of these painters, which is fine. You know, like again, like I'm sure I like all kinds of artists who other people would find horrible, but <laughs> but um, 
I look at the defences for some of these painters and it's the same kind of thing I complain about all the time in the sense that kind of, it's like they start talking and suddenly we're not talking about painting anymore. We're talking about something else. We're talking about something, something very weird. Like this, this was this person's defense of Odd Nerdum, who is this kind of, if you can look at him, he is this neo surreal kind of figurative artist, like who does, who paints in these, these kind of desolate, I would almost say it's kind of like emptied out slightly kind of, um, kind of like Samuel Beckett kind of scenes. But this yeah. person says, these paintings offer a weird es esotericism. Um, the idea of his work being kitsch is, um, is only partly correct. He's a sort of illustrative theosophical picture book with um, subjectless musings of altered states on lonely godless spirituality. Um, uh, it has this dark world magic about it that is alchemical, but never brings the goods. They go on to say, there is no story. They are all frozen statues in the Necronomicon, a timeless state of death in the logos of hell in Kabbalistic wizardry. At the, but what the fuck are we even like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck? What the fuck are we even talking about? Like, but that's just it. Like, I'm, I don't know whether these painters actually sit down and think, but like, you know, this is the kind of thinking and talk like this art Kate does cater to a kind of lowest common denominator kind of thing. Like if you know a little bit about Rembrandt, then yeah, Odd Nerdum doesn't look really impressive. Wow. It's almost better than Rembrandt actually. Yeah. It's more like, does Rembrandt have like cannibals? No. Like, like this, this is cool. Like, uh, and like, um, you no, know, like, and it's not got any Jesus stuff in it. That's cooler. Like it's like, it's it's almost like you're trying to get rid of like it's almost like a post weirdly enough it's almost like post medium painting you try to have it both ways you try to like present contempt like paintings to us now that almost ask you, you to will yourself to believe that they're paintings from sort of sort of imaginary past it's bullshit like the best way to look at art is to look at it without preconceptions, without ideology. However, you can try to do that. You know, it's hard, but that's the best way to look without expectation, to come to it like naked, as it were. And like, and like that's that's the challenge. Because, you know, the amount of times one's been wrong about painting, like the amount of times one looks again and just just like just feels just inadequate compared like just that there's no one like oh with the best art anyway because like it, people hide behind this this difficulty of talking about art where they say oh the difficulty of talking about it that's why it's so excellent no it's fucking incoherent like we should be able to fucking talk about it we should be able to get into the art we should like but we shouldn't again it shouldn't become systematic it shouldn't just become us you know, there won't be a skeleton key that will find that will give us a way to do this. So like, again, like Dan Lee, he's doing something that's very himself, but like I think it is a kind of minor thing compared to the the bigger thing, which is kind of again what I kind of maybe 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 hold up too high in regard. But like that's the painterly stuff I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, if if you guys will uh, humor me one more time. Just to come back, because I, I mentioned earlier, wanted to look at at least one Cezanne figurative painting. And yeah, sure, the, sure. The, the two of you may be over the rouge cheeks debate, but I don't know that I'm over it yet. And so this Maybe. one here, 
of Madame, uh, Cezanne, Madame Cezanne, right? Which he did, uh, uh-huh. you know, a, a number of her. But this one, uh, I was just scrolling through the different portraits of her that he painted, and and this one stood out because it's, um, you know, now it's a third piece in the triumvirate of the Rouge Cheeks, and we can talk about it a bit. So, I, what did what did she really look like? We'll never know. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like we'll never know. Painting to painting, she's a different woman. True, and so I I wanted to talk about this one rather than this one because i i feel like this yeah, is i prefer the, i prefer the other one actually mm-hmm. yeah so 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 let's let's uh let's talk about this one here i uh, like the arabesques in this more like um, uh, there's there's the it's that there's almost something elephantine about that other painting like this painting is more there's more of a free, free-flowing arabesque these curves you see in the kind of the the um, the outlines of the figure the silhouette of the figure but also in the tree and kind of the the roses in the background it's very lovely it's lovely and the dress and and we could talk for hours i think about the hands in her lap like mm-hmm. there's matisse for you right well and they're they're all they're interlocked maybe supposedly so again but look uh, they're, they're, they're not filled in they're barely yeah. filled in He's got the outlines of them. A couple here, lines. Yeah, yeah it's very, very Rembrandt-esque. Uh, you know, lots of unfinished hands. Um, and, right. and, yeah, and, it is like a Rembrandt yeah. drawing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. yeah, in um, and, and notice like the uh, the in the back the uh, you know the 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 line. Um, you know, uh, you have Which like line? the the line that's separating. I'm guessing this is like a wall that she's sitting in front of. That that um, that's diagonal line sloping yeah. across from left yeah. to right. Yeah, yeah, the diagonal line. Uh, notice yeah. how it just like at some point, you know, just cuts into the tree, right? Not because it's necessarily logical for like a vertical line to do so, but you know, uh, if if Cezanne says, "I I, I choose," you know, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know he, he says, "I judge my the brightness uh, in my canvases uh, by the intensity, right, of the light, the intensity of the color, as opposed to just yeah. like making it lighter to you know." Uh, uh, make the appearance of light so this could just be you know something like that right perhaps there was a kind of brilliance and illumination as he saw this when this was being painted and you know that was a necessity right we have to have it cut through the tree branch i'm only um, gonna chaps just to, you know i'm only gonna have a half hour more to speak with you i'm unfortunately okay i've, I've got okay. i've got to let my my partner use the computer but okay. um uh, but okay no, I, I totally agree with uh, i it's it's Cezanne always kind of um, uh, has this thing with the edges of, you see it most in his still life where he always does the edge of a, of a chest of drawers or something like that, or a tabletop. It's always, always this odd thing. Like um, uh, one wonders kind of what, what he's up to there. Like whether that's something that he's struggling with, like the, 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 the wobble of it, or whether, or whether he is kind of looking more at the light there. And light is a, is a tricky thing also to talk about. We, we, we've only ever kind of like danced around color in this conversation. So color, I mean, what is color? Cezanne once said that you can't paint light. What you have to do is find a substitute for light. You have to find something that stands in for light on that surface. And so how does one, how does one, get paint to mimic the effect of light well first one has to grasp what light is doing with one's experience within one's experience of that light acting upon kind of the objects of your gaze but then also one must find a way to kind of again bring that about to make that 
work act to like activate that on the surface. And color and light aren't really different things uh, insofar as kind of like as phenomena. You know, like light and color, uh, like color is not something that is there that is kind of waiting um, that color, that light then reveals or just like illumines. Color is a byproduct of light. Light, electromagnetic uh, radiation penetrates a substrate, a wall, a membrane, anything. And the substrate soaks up electromagnetic radiation and excretes, sweats out a certain wavelength of electromagnetic radiation. And that becomes the so-called local color. Any color that anything is at any given moment depends upon the light acting upon it. In the same, like, uh, it, it is brought about and also affected by the objects that are also there, the refraction of light. You know, so light is such an incredibly, um, uh, uh, like, f uh, fleeting sensation, such a, a difficult kind of, uh, uh, phenomenon to really kind of depict in the way that kind of all the different things it's doing at one point in painting kind of Cezanne kind of does turn that to kind of rhythm and um color and kind of I suppose a certain kind of touch which is almost like uh something akin to a sculptural touch the way he's almost carving out in these sheer planes, these facets. He once said that everything in nature can be reduced to the cone or the square or the or the cylinder. And so what he's doing is, again, he's sort of breaking things down into vectors, finding new centers and, and then kind of working out and just kind of doing like doing things like that, applying pre some pressure here, some pressure there. And the, the, so the image almost develops, as it were, like a daguerreotype. It's sort of, you know, it's it's this kind of gradual adjustment of kind of light color to light color, like color to color to color to color. Well, I don't think at some times he would even be thinking this is a tree. This is a tree. This is a tree. He would be thinking in terms of very minute things like like um, uh, this blue here and what it's and that line there, what it's doing there mm. the way that that the actual space between like we were saying the sculpture idea of the negative space opposed to the positive space the space between the the positive spaces has its own kind of um physicality as it were it's just as present physically present on the surface but as a space a spatial declaration as the positive areas in that they are also bracketed spaces they are part of kind of this different um there's a term from cladistics i believe where um almost uh, paraphyletic everything is related as it were like everywhere your eye moves there's a different thing that is almost echoing the thing you've just been looking at but altering it transforming it so like we were talking about with the matisse painting earlier you know like you might get lots of wild arabesque lines you know a drawing might there might be lots of like in this drawing we see a lot of quite interesting calligraphic line you know in the contours in the modeling here in the blue though those blue outlines how curious but it also might be um uh, again a kind of um something else like again kind of the 
the touch the the way the way in which he um, um he makes the, the sense of something moving from the back into the front all this other stuff the way by just following these different uh sensations mm-hmm. yeah uh, do, do you guys, uh, not to cut up Cezanne short, because uh, first of all, in the last couple of weeks, I've definitely found uh, a new, like a newfound appreciation for Cezanne that I didn't. I mean, I, I always thought that he was a very good painter, but, you know, spending a lot more time with it um, opened stuff up. But you wanted to Oh, talk I was going to say, by the way, I was going to, but, but sorry, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I knew I, I hadn't completed my thought properly. But when, when I was speaking about positive, negative space and how they're all equally present and stuff like that, I, Again, I wanted to link that back to the movement of the eye and what your experience is as a viewer, what that has to do with all this making, right? Because I have to point at what Cezanne's doing, but I have to say what it does, you know? Your eye moves through this painting. Cezanne is making these spaces for your eye to move. He's making these spaces, these affordances. That's why I say in like uh, paraphyletic, your eye is ushered on, it's moved through. There is, the, it's almost as it were like a pathway, but there is no one entryway. There is, and but also there is no one um, easy way that he just gives you like a kitsch artist would, like here, come in through the center and leave out through the side. No, here it's just this tumble of stuff from the top to the bottom, from the back to the front, from the side to the side, corner to corner, everywhere you look, this different kind of um, uh, like pageant, I would say, mm-hmm. and I, I use that word kind of like very, like, yeah, pageant of different kind of things, the differences. Yeah. Different kinds of drawing, different kinds of color, different kinds of space, different kinds of light, a composition that takes all these things and bundles them together and will work on your wall and will work next to other paintings. What more could one ask from a painting? Alex, what were you, what was your thought there? What were you going to say? Um, oh, I was just I was just going to say that uh, uh, since we have limited time, do you want to talk about Suzanne and the elders, uh, Ethan? Because that's one that I had. Uh, it feels pretty um, opaque. So opaque Suzanne to, to Tintoretto, yes, yeah. to make even more blatant um, the the um, uh, the continuity between Suzanne and other great painters of kind of um, pre modernism or kind of. Uh, you know the renaissance if you like it but um do you have that one ready to go alex i don't yeah, think i have, I have that yeah i have it um but just I, to say I, that kind of you see the same level of kind of ambition in certain painters from the past even allowing all the kind of certain let's shall we say shall we say that the things like like for instance the fact that these people were all basically religious painters because that's what being a painter was or if you were a painter in kind of the Renaissance, your subject matter with ne- your clients were the church. Inevitably, your subject matter was iconography. And even if you were working for a noble, they were usually part of the church and everything was in the context of that belief system, which was, you know, um, uh, you know, theocracy, theolo- theology, iconography. So but it, so even within these constraints, the artists of the Renaissance take these, um, you know, I, I hear people, essayists in the Daily Telegraph, who think they're writers about painting. They talk about rena- artists from the Renaissance, and it's easy to get kudos talking about artists from the Renaissance. But they write about these uh, these paintings like mongs. All they use it for is just an excuse to show off their biblical knowledge or their knowledge of the allegories or some sort of trite bit of trivia, like, oh, the red represents this. No, talk about the painting. Talk about why is this a great painting? What makes Tintoretto an important artist? Kind of because 
because at the end of the day, all these allegories are great, but like we were saying, they could function as a mist as well. And, you know, um, um, it, you know, it, it, at the same time, um, you know, like, um, uh, you have to get, you have to give a sense in which kind of, because the, the thing about painters like Sint, Tintoretto and Cezanne is they are the apotheosis of a certain kind of painterly tradition. They do bring a certain kind of painterly tradition to a, a height which has never been seen before and then afterwards we never see again. And one has to kind of, in a way, say why that is. You know, why is that? Because there are, again, we have a lot of people walking around today talking about things as if it were post-medium. Kind of like, as if everything were the fucking same. I, I hear people talk like this. I hear people say, oh, it's all the fucking same. Beethoven, pornography, dog track racing. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, but, you know, like what precisely is part of this that makes this high culture and not just, you know, quote unquote, elitist culture? Because this represents an elite world. That's the world of kind of Renaissance painting. It is an and that's why it's so great in a way, because this was an elite I mean, incredibly specialized kind of craft gilded sort of um, uh, 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 career, if you would. And uh, painting really had to live up to all these things because it had no choice. The art existed to make um, uh, the, the, the church and the ruling class believable. It existed to make the space of their beliefs real. And like, it had no choice but to fulfill all those things. But like, the trade-off is to like, we have to then say kind of what happens with modernism is that this horribly unequal society goes away, but we get an artwork, a world of art in which we don't have the assuredness of kind of a certain kind of tradition. We don't have the, um, uh, we don't have this kind of iconography that is shared, that is cultural, like, um, uh, like say Catholicism in a secular society that we can just draw upon to, to like, you know, um, uh, like, it's not about just flattering kind of the ruling ideology now. You have to create your own ideology. You have to create and justify your own reasons for being an artist. What makes Titian relevant to today's art? What makes Tintoretto, we're talking about, relevant to today's art? Well, it's the same, well, it's relevant in the same way Cezanne is relevant. Here, we just have like a maximizing of everything painting can do. We have, um, we have all sorts of detail, all sorts of scintillating detail. You know, it really is the case that Tintoretto was trying to paint every hair on that woman's head. You also have um, uh, lots of fucking space and distance. If we actually follow the painting, it goes back quite far. If, if you look into the top left quadrant of the painting, you see that like we goes into sort of an indeterminate misty background in a perspectival recession. Um, the whole landscape, if you'll notice, it quite typically a Venetian Renaissance painting is slightly tipped up as like a tabletop perspective, like a still life or an aerial perspective, tipped up so the space recedes backwards and we see it receding backwards. And we even have these little bracketed avenues, these tunnels, these trompe wheels, these literal funnels down through the central space of the painting that Tintoretto sets up. And even back there, we see him disrupt it with the... Um, uh, horizontal of that river coming in from the left-hand corner and cutting through the center, right through the path where we see the figure lurking behind the wall at the end there, and where those trees come up and create bars between us and the tunnel that carries back. So again, lots of interrupted spaces and this sort of interplay between horizontal and vertical, the way that you have this architecture, which is almost like cubism, opened up, sort of exploded in a way. We have a, a space, but it's 
um, we can see around it and through it. We, there's all these interregnums and weird different detours that we can look. In fact, this is, again, like a Cezannean pinball machine. Our eyes rocket around in here. And all these other sort of strange, in fact, compare this to the Moroccans by Matisse. Um, in, that, in that picture, we had uh, ovals, but here we have heads. So look, think about this painting as an interplay between these different planar structures, like the walls and the tunnels, for instance, and, the, and that mesh fence in the background, and these more volumetric modelled sculptural um, things, such as the figure of Susanna and her head, the figure of this elder on the left-hand quadrant behind the wall, and his head, the way that the mirror is right between a kind of diagonal um, um, path across the painting between his head and hers, so that you have an illusionistic space in the mirror right there, kind of where his body would be behind the wall. All these little plays on space and perspective where he sets up sort of a continuum and then interrupts it and brackets it off and like builds out. And like, I'm a, so, and also we were talking about Baroque space, right? Here, just a great illustration of like a space that recedes, comes out and has lots of these sculptural arrangements, configurations, scattered down through the depth of the painting, while at the same time having a kind of a, a counterpunctual movement, which I would say you can find in the foliage of these trees and this wall and these, um, uh, these more naturalistic sort of um, uh, things, such as like the foliage or, um, uh, again, the way that the verticals of these trees are sort of playing in this little... Um, uh, Against, against the elder, right? I mean, they're sort of leaning, most of them are leaning towards the elder. He's leaning towards her, right? There's that opposite that kind em of... That uh, empty space on the other side of the wall there, above the elder at the bottom left-hand corner, where you mm -hmm. see the, the, the deer and the kind of the river coming in the back. And the, 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 the vertical weight, in a way, the pressure of those tree trunks as they come down, like I'm a... And the way that, yeah, the way that like you just really, the, I always see these trees in these great paintings, especially, and how more accentuated it is by the fact that the space is, again, tipped up. We're not seeing everything front on. We are slightly, either we're slightly elevated or the space itself is on an incline, which wouldn't really make sense. But then that's the thing about this space. If you were to actually take the space seriously as a literal, you know, record of an actual space to be measured inch by inch, one would find it tricky. With Vermeer, one could do it. With with um, uh, Della Francesca, one can do it, but not really with Baroque, high Venetian painters. Because the 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 the, the sense of, um, uh, uh, shall we say, mathematical um, uh, perspectival recession was more liberally used, more fancifully used in painters like Rubens and Titian, partly because they weren't the only painters working on it. They would have assistants, they would have journeyman apprentices who would say specialise in uh, Greek uh, urns and vases, another painter who would specialise in say uh, aqu um, uh, aquatic gods or something like that, and they would you know, come in and add their section and every other person would contribute, and then all at the end the master would have to tie everything together with his touch. That's what you get in Rubens. Rubens has not painted all of his paintings, but it's his job to then get all these little things, which really don't look like they're really in the same space. There is something slightly hyper-real about the way, there's almost too many different light sources in this painting. You have it coming through the back, you have it coming from the front. It's just so many different light sources. It works. It's great, 
but again it, it, it works because it's painting it works because it's held together by that touch by that it's not it's slightly difficult to to get a hold of with this reproduction but it works because um that final kind of touch that um uh, that's that finish it all ha it has to be done in one go really that that was another rule among sort of like all these things were done very quickly but in lot over time very every successive layer has to be executed very quickly but it would take years and very often like you, they're working from drawings they're working from other paintings they're working these things are very elaborately worked out you know they're very meticulous they're very conceptual even so this is this is the thing about kind of like renaissance painting like tintoretto just how much there is in there how it can be in, of us from a certain perspective to a genre painting it mm -hmm. is a genre painting but what like like you were saying alex kind of like within genres can great art be done yes but you know you have to you have to deliver and like tintoretto like for like you know you can just see it in the impression he leaves on painters after him how, what he contributes to painting overall which is largely this space which is almost turned up and stacked the background on top of the foreground just in a way just to cram more stuff in really while giving you more space to move through like that's the thing like how open it is how 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 inviting it is i could look at this painting forever like um uh, it's it's just it's just it's done it's the language of visual excitement for me like and like again like the foreground with her leg going into the water how like you add like really it's, she's on an island if you think about it that mm. that stream cutting from the background Manet yeah. must have really loved Tintoretto if you look at a painting like this and think about Dejeuner Slurb right like, like a painting like this mm -hmm. is you could think you could almost imagine Manet standing in front of this painting and going how can I do my own mm -hmm. Suzanne and the Elders but but how can I do it like you know how can I make it for today and if you, it, it, yeah, it, yeah. Oh, go ahead go ahead just really quick, I was going to say, looking at this painting does make me think, Alex, from when we did the art and physics episode and talked about Manet and Déjeuner Soulerbe and also music in the Tuileries and the, the trees, which Ethan pointed out just a little bit ago, talking about this painting. And Schlein's claim in his book was that Manet was essentially the first to really uh, shatter the vertical mm -hmm. of trees. And you look at this painting, that's just not true. Um, I mean, yeah. right here, you know, we've got trees at angles and 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 curving and doing different things. Uh, so yeah, I'm not, anyway, I'm, not I'm not too, I'm not, I don't really like a lot of Schlenner Lane's writing about um uh, about painting personally, I, like where he tries to make everything into a kind of a an, a metaphor for some sort of scientific principle that's in the zeitgeist at the moment. I mean, well, like what what we were talking about though is like uh, e even if that's overstated on his part, the general idea that art communicates something deeply that has not been you know written down or sort of like really formalized in any way like that part is true right there's always like if you Maybe. read like great writing before you know freud there's still freudian you know insights into you know the psyche um i i think viewing it yeah, that, that way that, instead i of totally the agree with you in the sense that kind of like that's the thing that's so great about yeah uh, manet that he makes you know when we're saying kind of like the role of kind of artists like it's not that you're competing with artists from history you should be learning from them they're teaching mm -hmm. you 
Like, but you need to take their lessons seriously. For them, it was not the case of biting the artists who came before them. Not the, they, they knew that they had to make some sort of thing to make um, painting more durable. Sometimes that would mean emptying the painting out of a certain content. Sometimes that would mean upping the ante and putting in much more. But always one has to do something to it. One has to make some sort of contribution. And, the, and but at the same time, it's not a disowning or a, or, or a, or a distancing oneself from, from paint. The whole point of man is to make the great achievements of the past more um, uh, recognisable to make what's so great about a painting like this more recognizable to people in his own time by going, look, imagine a painting by Tintoretto, but it's not about some mythic, heady, dramatic scene from the Bible. Imagine if it was something that you saw in a walk home. That's his kind of conceit and that's his realist, quite literary conceit. But it's an interesting conceit, isn't it? Because that's an almost, that is in fact the first real instance of someone putting it that way, of saying, what if we could do? And Cezanne follows suit. Cezanne says, I want to redo Poussin after Impressionism. He puts it exactly that way. It's, it's literally, he's trying to kind of, again, what all great artists do, trying to in a way summarize the art of the past and push it forward. Like, that's what Tintoretto's doing. Maybe less obvious to us, or maybe more, I don't know. Like, again, there's, there's, there's cliches that we have to get around with any kind of art, mythologies, all this other stuff. But Tintoretto was, there's a layer there for us too. Mm -hmm. He's talking to the people of his time, he's talking to the Christians, but he knows that there is a level for us Who's us? Well, it could be artists. It could be modern people. Like, we can't say, but there is a level. And we can talk about this level, kind of like as a, as a level distinct, like that is broadcasting to the future, that is made with, like, the art of the future in mind. Because he is aware of his place in, in history. He is aware of his predecessors and his... I, and do you think he doesn't think about art as a continuity, Tintoretto, it's iconography, it's literal continuity, it's literal dogma. Like, he knows that he's making an intervention in a certain tradition for the tradition's sake. And that, and that it's, it, it, all the time, it's fraught with risk, mm. you know, but we can all be kitsch artists, we can make safe decisions, mm. we, can, we can make art that's cloying, that panders to people's ideas about art, that can even ingratiate and flatter people and sort of say, oh, you're creative too. You know, like, you know, it's like, but, you know, creative, like, it, it's, 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 it's like, there's a kind of faux intellectualism that goes on nowadays that kind of is, is, is part of the reason why kind of my kind of hunt for art kind of online or whatever has become more desperate because more and more it's harder and harder to get away from this kind of, rhetoric about art which mm -hmm. again either literalizes it or reduces it to an object people like the way i mean if you look at any kind of art academy or anything now or kind of in, in, in any of these um uh, awards it's all like incredibly like oh i don't even know like, all this art show kind of stuff all these freeze painters all these kind of um uh, like it, it's all just it all makes the scene far too quickly mm -hmm. anything that makes the scene that quickly can only be minor like what uh, Greenberg said, like it, it's it's a it, like 
great art is a kind of, a, it has to be a personal thing. It has to be this personal endeavor where you kind of, you return to it. It's my obsession, you know, kind of like I wake up and I think about paintings. Most of the day I'm thinking about paintings. Like it's, it's, it just compels me. And so when I think about kind of like what's at stake for painting, <laughs> I say, look at the art of the past and it's all there. It's all already there. The art of the future is in the past. Culture and time itself is not aligned in one direction. It's not a loop either. It's not a recursive thing. Things don't just come around and around again. In fact, that's what postmodernism would have you think, that we're all stuck in a loop of the same forever and ever and ever. High is low, low is high. No, time, like time, history is a fucking spiral. Like, it, like, like it, it depends how far you go into it. And when you go into it, it, you'll just get sucked in and like, you, you'll just know more and more and more if you want to learn more. Like, I can't help but learn everything I'm like everything I can about painting because I need to, you know, it, this is not required for everyone. No, it's not normal. Neither should it be. But like, that's where I'm coming from. And that's like, that's, that's always kind of like the perspective that I would bring to like a conversation about painting. It's that kind of, I do, unlike Heron, have a kind of visionary perspective for painting that incorporates the ancient past, but also the future. I mean, what the fuck does painting mean for today? COVID today, you know, what the fuck does like, how are any of you going to be able to afford any like um, a contemporary art anytime soon? Are any of you going to be able to attend any galleries anytime soon? Hopefully. Hopefully, right? But it's not a fucking given. No. These are these are these are the time for questions like this. What does a post-COVID art mean? Not just post-COVID painting. What does post-COVID art mean? Listen, I'm perfectly it's, fine it's just zooming in. I, I'm perfectly fine just zooming in like this and examining detail from my computer. As philistine uh, as that sounds, um, I've always been that way. If I could just yeah. look at shit without leaving my house. Speaking of which, like uh, I, I was going to ask you, Ethan, about like the the symbolism uh, here in terms of like, do you think you know that that even adds anything and you know I, I, my answer is no i think your answer is no probably because it's i think like i think alex though it's because like we know even if you don't know the iconography you can guess yeah and i mean it sort of doesn't, on, let's, sort let's of doesn't matter right i mean it's uh, the point of iconography is that it's fairly it's fairly you know this is the thing where i don't get about like uh fucking young and all this stuff symbols are quite rote Symbols like, you know, there's no such thing as a personal language. If you're using a pictorial language, there is going to be some sort of like, you know, it's, I mean, like symbols are pretty easy to deduce, especially in iconography, where you see it repeated all the time. If you look at enough of them, you'll know what is fucking going on. Like, uh, and that's the case with a lot of, I feel like a lot of bad art. But in the case of kind of like this sort of art from the past, like, like, it, you should be mistrustful of art, which like praises art like this and only talks about what's happening on the level of like what's symbolically happening or what's allegorically happening because we, you should trust us enough to be able to get that. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think the fucking painters do do like, there's none of this false, um, uh, uh, sentimental enigmatic theatricality about a painting like this. It's dramatic. This is a drama. You know, like, I don't think there's any sort of overt, um, uh, uh cloying emotionality uh, i don't think there's any kind of um uh 
Like even in that face, even in that beautiful idealized um, uh, nude's face, like there's none of the the sweet, sugary, synthetic confectionery or like you get in kind of a, a GUA two. Like it's it's just everything here. Like yeah, all my favorite artists are figurative artists like this, you know, kind of. But you know, I'm um like it's it's like that. Yeah, the, the, these artists continue to be new for me. People like Tintoretto and stuff like that. I don't know. I see. Anyway, I, I, I see that blush on the cheek, and it's it's the same old blush, right? And and Suzanne is supposed to be, you know, the uh, uh, kind of like the, the pure holy one. Um, anyway, I'm uh, I'm joking. But uh, uh, like one one thing I wanted to say. So you mentioned like you know how Manet must have like looked at this and been like, you know what? How can I construct you know a modern day version of this? And uh, I, I think that's that's a good observation, partly because you know some of this symbolism actually doesn't really matter with Manet though. He's like, okay, so, uh, uh, I'm going to put symbols here that really have no meaning whatsoever. And although, uh, True. maybe in art from centuries ago, you could sort of, you know, dick around and try to he figure does, out what that he means. He does get playful with his imagery, but you're yeah. right. It's the predominance of his style is the predominant thing. His, yeah. his, his, you'll see like Tintoretto, Manet does horizontal compositions a lot of the time he doesn't do straight upright port he likes the openness of the the horizontal he likes how much you can put in there and he doesn't note there's no literal center in this is there there's no so like where did where did the painter start no idea like um with Manet, it's the same thing but like you're right he does kind of he really does make it the, this realist thing of anything i look at in real life can become a painting it's the mastery of my eye over the objects of my gaze so he could do anything from a he could do a manifesto painting and he did like Dejeuner Summer that's a manifesto painting uh, or a painting like um, uh, uh, the Venus like um, uh, or Olympia that's a manifesto painting but he could also do these more um, yeah like sober sulky pictures of asparagus or um, uh, you know his son like in a kitchen or people on the beach. That was the idea. Again, that like he could just touch stuff and it was painting now. And like, and in a way, those manifesto paintings were him kind of in a way kind of playing to the crowd a bit. He is kind of knowingly anticipating the response of the press and all this sort of stuff and going, okay, you want you want a reject painting, you want a salon reject artist, I'll give you a real salon, I'll give you um, a you know a, a prostitute painting. Like um, uh, what's wrong? There are prostitutes in all the Renaissance paintings. These are yeah. these are no different. You know, you can imagine him like that's the chuckling, very um uh, sort of quite orphanly kind of school professorly kind of wit you get in painters like Corbet and all these like almost Nabokovian in a way, you know, like uh, that kind of very literary kind of like slightly uh, like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, they're they're, they're very in love with Nabokov. Like those French painters is very in love with himself. The idea of himself as an artist, like, um, uh, which again, you see in a lot of modernism, kind of the idea of the artist, what, what, what he chooses to make art for, um, uh, you know, romanticism was all about noble stuff. Like uh, modernism became about you, basically. It became about your world, your mind, your perspective. Um, increasingly, there is more pressure on art to be political and all this other stuff. And again, I would again stress kind of the primacy of this kind of modernist way of looking at stuff. Not a kind of like neo-modernism, but I think kind of like, like I, I do respond to that, like we were saying, like quite traditional idea of being able to see the work being able to see the hours put in craft values 
you know, I, I, I like conceptual stuff. I like literary stuff. I like emotion. That's not what kitsch is for me. Kitsch is not against emotion. Kitsch is against um, uh, assumptions and laziness and complacency and bad taste. Um, um, oh, that's what kitsch is. Like, I'm a, but what I want is painting that kind of like that um, um, ups the stakes. In that stuff. But anyway, guys, I've got to be getting off like I'm, uh, because I'm already pushing my, my work with this time. And um, uh, I think my, my partner's mad at me. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, we'll, 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 is, we'll just finish this up. And I mean, we, we should do something this again. I mean, this was very good. No, this, this was good. Like, um, like uh, I hope I don't, again, I, I didn't come off as too kind of like a, like, um, a Stalinist, Stalinist, like I'm in, in my, um, uh, uh, de declarations about like I'm a painting and this and that and whatever, but like I, I like I like polemic sometimes. Like I it's like good. I'm yeah, a it's good. It's good. I'm a polemicist at heart as well. Um, <laughs> even if I'm an artist, like it's still like it's it's good. Um, yeah, and like like Trump uh, told us, don't fucking apologize, especially if you didn't do anything wrong. Double right, so double down. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Dig in, baby. Double down. No, that's that's good. That's I like that obstinance. That's that's the that's the flavor of the flavor of this uh the flavor of this new new decade. But yeah. um yeah, it's been lovely talking to you chaps. Um like I'm always happy just to talk about painting as it is. So like this has been one hell of a, an opportunity. Yeah, look, I, we, we, I we we prepared so many I always over prepare. We prepared so many paintings, we got through like ten percent of them. So uh, we, we could do this ten thought, more times, ten more times, okay. we get through the rest. Well we should again we should we should we <laughs> do something again soon. Like um uh, like we could have got I could have gone for not for longer. Um, but um, uh, hopefully, I, I, I was able to like cover kind of an, like a fair amount of ground, so that you you don't you're like you're not like left kind of going kind of like like what the fuck does Ethan believe in like what the fuck is his deal like like hopefully you have a good enough idea of kind of like yeah. what kind of what where my brain is insofar as paint is concerned. Yeah. But yeah, been absolutely great talking to you, Japs. Joel, Alex, like um, uh, been absolutely lovely. Let's do this again sometime. Yep. Have a good night. Sounds good, Ethan. Yeah, you too. I don't know how okay. to walk out of this, by the way. Like, oh, leave. Yeah, you, can just, you, you can push leave. Yeah. <laughs> See you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye. Leave meeting. Leave meeting. He's done it. All right. Uh, I mean, do you, do you want to finish like with this painting a little, a little bit? Um, there's just some things I wanted to uh, say, like, yeah, I was talking about this concept of like, you know, I've always liked this idea of like the anti symbol. Right. Um, and like what I was reading about this painting, it's all like, like people were talking about like, oh, you know, like the red and one of the elders is, you know, he, he's dangerous and he's a rapist. Right. So it makes sense. And well, first of all, it's not really red. Um, second, yeah, I, I yeah. Second, it's much more interesting to, for me, to look at, you know, th this like pink cloth or shawl or whatever it is that he's sort of holding on to. He's clutching um, it. Maybe he stole it from her. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe sort of clothes. And like, to me, like, okay, if you want to get on, you know, the, this idea of danger, you know, the trite way of doing it probably is like, you know, let, let's, you know, let's make this guy get given a forbidden color. But instead it's like, okay, so she doesn't quite know what's going on yet. She's, you know, sort of uh, staring at the mirror and there's like these flowers around and there are these, it's the same pink color, right? As, as this, um, you know, the danger zone, right? And, you know, it, it's a, it's a nice way to think about like, if you, if you imagine like the, their ultimate confrontation, right? Uh, th this gives it a little poetic quality. There's other like things I noticed, like, I'm not sure if Ethan mentioned this in his uh, talk about like the, um, 
the, the, the horizontals, but you have this like river horizontal that like the river here expands like by, by the uh, elder's foot. Right. Um, you know, so there, there's an expansion of that. And, uh, I, I noticed this, like thing about her body as she sits down and does whatever she's doing. Um, it's so kind of, you know, it's, it's, there's such a mass to it that here you have a piece of grass that's bending. It literally picks up water and then it goes back on its way when she readjusts herself. And this action, you know, this motion is already captured, right? So, mm -hmm. there, you know, there, there are tons of stuff here, but I wanted Ethan to discuss this specifically since he said this is like, you know, his idea of like the greatest painting ever. But, you know, there, there's yeah. lots of details like that. And even like the luminosity of the, uh, the colors, like this is very like El Greco you know, like before we like way before El Greco. Right. Um, uh -huh. so anyway, those are, I guess the rest of my thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, I'm very glad we got Ethan on and, and the ability to talk through some of these paintings, uh, in specific. And, um, I, I guess my immediate summary feeling on some of this is that there there's room for both approaches. For sure, yeah. uh, not not that they're completely discrete from one another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you, what what you and I would describe our, as our more narrative literary approach to to looking at at paintings. And I think like would, like Ethan did not like when he was saying different paintings we could talk about. He didn't send us like any shit paintings, right? Right, right, right. Um, like that, that's that that that's something too important. Like even if we have like the you know these divergences and some of the specifics, like I would you know disagree you know conceptual about like you know Soviet art. Like yes, there's a difference between artistic mandate and what gets you know put up by the state versus whether or not you could do something you know in that category. Uh, but you know like even if we have these disagreements, which seem kind of large and in some cases insurmountable i mean he did not send any like shit ass paintings that i would think like why would he even want to talk about this right um so right you know yeah well and and that's just it i think that there um it, it probably speaks well to uh, well certainly it speaks well to great art in general that uh, maybe you can come at it from a couple very different starting points but end up in the same conclusion you have to be able to right yeah, that that's part of what our argument has been all along, uh, and will continue to be. And so that that speaks very well to these artists and to their artworks. Um, and and so I, I'm glad for it. It's been really good to listen to him and uh, you know offer his insight, especially as a working painter. And um, you know, it's it's forced me to certainly start to wrestle more with with my general perceptions and how I've approached uh, painting most especially in the past, um, you know, as an artistic medium and, and maybe how to look and, and what to be more so how to look than, than what to look for. Cause I think mm -hmm. that's been my typical approach in the past is, uh, let's go on the hunt for, you know, for something that, that can fit into a narrative or, or, you know, is, and that's maybe been the biggest thing with ABEX, uh, right. Cause I, I think that even though Ethan made a good, distinction earlier in our conversation between there's good abex and bad abex just like there's good figurative and bad figurative uh and, and all this kind of stuff because i think that my tendency in the past has been to lump all of that more or less together and so uh, abex i mean uh mm -hmm. just as an example so it's it's making me think afresh about uh, not just dismissing things out of hand but to really learn a little bit more of how to look and um and give things time, you know, several, several takes before making 
a judgment call. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the last couple of weeks have been pretty good, you know, pretty uh, relaxed, you know, prepping for this specifically. Um, you know, definitely found a new appreciation for Cezanne just by like having to like literally, you know, sit through tons of uh, paintings and, uh, you know, read uh, more of the details, things were set, set, set about him. Like, um, so yeah, uh, maybe, maybe one day we could just do like a, a show where we're just like talking about just, I don't know, t 10 paintings that, you know, we just randomly want to talk about um, combining, you know, some of these uh, various approaches. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Be game for that. Um, yeah. So this is, um, this is uh, uh, Black Girl Stock Picks telling you about how to trade on Weeble. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my god.